Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how is the Cheers rewatch going? It's good. We're into series seven or eight now. I can't remember. It all kind of blurs into one mass of hilarity <laughs> when you've watched this many. Uh, I was pleased to solve the mystery of the Cheers thumbnail. On Amazon Prime, every episode of Cheers has the same thumbnail. It's a picture of Sam and Carla standing at the bar, and there is what appears to be a Chinese lantern in the top right corner, which doesn't look like it is of the same world as Sam and Carla. It's kind of 2D, it looks superimposed over the top, and uh, every time we play an episode of Cheers, I say to Catherine, what the hell is going on with that lantern? That isn't part of the set. I have no idea what that is. Have Paramount superimposed it for some reason? And then we finally watched an episode where that Chinese lantern was hanging in the bar. So there you go. There's a, a riveting minute of podding. I think that that is this year's guy from Borgen looks like Jeff Keighley tweets. You know what I mean? Where <laughs> it'll, it'll come up over and over again. And like in eight months, you'll be like, why isn't my Cheers lantern tweet getting the same traction as the Blorco tweet? You know what I mean? The Borgen one, I don't really understand because... Jeff Keighley is a pop culture figure, and it looks so much like Jeff Keighley. I just don't know why people refuse to engage with it. This, I know that this is niche. This has actually already had pretty good engagement. I supercharged it, I feel. I think you did, because people don't want to have another Borgen tweet, basically. <laughs> they don't want that to happen, so they're trying to nip it in the bud here, and it's obviously not working, because listen to the last 90 seconds of this podcast. Yeah. Okay, so how are you doing otherwise? Like, we're at the end of January. It's sort of like it's been a, you know, an interesting month in the games industry. But, uh, yeah. yeah, how are you feeling generally? Yeah, all right. Mostly been playing like Dragon Infinite Wealth in my spare time. I've done. I've played a lot of video games this month. Now I'm straight into uh, Persona 3 Reload. All right. Are you, uh, re- are you reviewing that one? No, I'm not. I just... just... I just wanted to dip into it last night to see what it was like. I have very vague memories of the first few hours of Persona 3 back in the day. Yeah, I just started playing it and it kind of got its hooks into me. But I was like, what am I doing? I just don't have time to have another 50 plus hour JRPG in my life. Yeah, this is kind of why I'm I'm sort of resolving to come back to Yakuza later in the year when I finish uh, the original Like a Dragon. I'll, I'll dip into Persona 3, but I'm probably just saving my time for Final Fantasy 7 at this point. Because I know that'll be the yeah. one I, I definitely want to play. So... Uh, um, yeah, well, I, I still need to play Remake, but I, f- I feel better equipped for Final Fantasy VII now, now that I'm a true master of Disc 1. <laughs> Honestly, as an exercise, that has helped so much with the day job. Right, right. Knowing what the fuck's going on and what people are talking about really, really helps. Infinite Wealth, though, I, I hope you do get through the, the first Like a Dragon, because it is essential, really, to kind of appreciate Infinite Wealth, but absolutely fantastic game i finished it yesterday and just really sticks the land in that game what they've done with the yakuza series is like a successful version or exactly what i want from someone attempting a kind of mcu or a connective narrative universe whatever the collective term is for that for those kind of projects yeah that is just the perfect amount of like callbacks and cameos and like warm nostalgia but not stodgy and it feels finite it feels like a complete piece of work in itself but still with these ties to other things it's so expertly done really really good fun yeah yeah so it's funny though because i spoke to you i think like two twice during your sort of journey with the game and your sort of like sentiment was very much oh it's so long though that was how you felt when you were playing it at the time did you become a little bit 
more accustomed to the pace or did the you know did it sort of justify how long yeah. it ended up being like how, what was your sort of journey with that part of the game it's really slow at the start full of lovely character beats re-establishes the cast of the first game for the first handful of hours you know and in your mind you've got all the exciting like honolulu and all the the new classes and the new features and the new mini games and they actually drip feed those very slowly over the first 20 hours and I guess in the moment I was like, oh, I, I, I think that might be my reviewer brain. More like, oh, I'd really like to see these things now so I can start thinking about them. Because mm. I, was, I was genuinely worried it was going to be like 100 hours long. It wasn't, it took me like 55 or something. Right. And that was quite a thorough play. I really dug into quite a lot of stuff around it. By the end, maybe I'd sort of settled more into the pace. I think I'd lost the fear of like, am I going to be able to finish this in time for writing this review? Yeah, And once that was gone, great, now I can just kind of enjoy this. Because I try to play games as I would, you know, if I was just a punter. Yeah. But I, when it's a game that size, you sometimes can't, um, you know, so I was getting up at like early in the morning to play like a couple of hours before the day job every day, just because I was fearing like, oh shit. And then it became apparent, oh, I'm on the final run of this now and I'm going to have a bit of time to write the review afterwards. So it was fine and I could enjoy it for what it was and... I mean, if if you are a long term fan, it's just uh, yes, superb the way they kind of bring it all together and lean into it. And like, I haven't written the review yet, so I don't don't know if any of these thoughts will resurface. But when you've got a game series with recurring characters, that's that's genuinely been going on now for twenty years. You actually kind of get into the realms of almost like you know that the film Boyhood. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, you can almost begin to pull off a project like that where you're like, well, this world has a, you know, we've been through a lot of time with this this world and these characters. You know, they are physically older. They aren't trapped in a bubble. You know, they've always been games that dealt with their contemporary settings and try to kind of acknowledge what was actually going on and what concerns the world. And I think this game, even more so than the others, leans into the, God, we've been through a lot with these people and, you know, they've really changed. And what does 20 years of being a Yakuza protagonist do to a person? I was quite moved by some of that. Hmm, Interesting. Well, you, the listener, might be confused into thinking this is a what we've been playing episode. It uh, isn't. Based on that. <laughs> it isn't. What, what, is, what is probably quite interesting sort of background for the listeners is that every now and then Matthew will take on like a monstrously big game to review. And there was a point where I think we thought, oh, the Patreon's doing well enough now that, you know, you don't have to... Basically, when you're a ger- games journalist, as a staff writer, you don't make enough money, so you make... Well, I don't know if that's still true, but you you know you do freelance to basically top up your salary. That was certainly true in Bournemouth when I was a, a, a staff writer. Like I just end up doing about I don't know two to three hundred quid worth of freelance a month just to make sure I had a bit more bit more to spend. Matthew has never broken out of that mentality, no matter how <laughs> high he has risen in the sort of like corporate ladder. And now I think you see games as like. Oh, I think you you see it as like a one last job situation where you're like, we like, I'm just gonna get get my crew out of retirement for one last uh, one there, last sort of like bank robbery, basically. There is a there is a bit of that. It just taps into a part of my brain that doesn't always get used in the day job. I'm also still flattered when people ask because not many people do these days. It's just nice to it's nice to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Should I address the um, consoles I bought over the weekend, Matthew? While we're <laughs> yeah, going to start on. this episode. <laughs> yeah, so this I bought <laughs> deranged. But... <laughs> uh, so after the episode with Ash, I just had a sort of like a, a bit of an odd Friday where I just sort of thought I'm, I'm going to buy a modded Dreamcast and a modded Sega Saturn. 
So I bought both of those. I have neither of them. Over- oh, no, I've got the Saturn, but I need like a step down power converter to run it because it's like a Japanese Saturn, basically. So, uh, yeah, I've I've done that. And the Dreamcast has HDMI modded into it. So it apparently runs at 1080p, 60 FPS. And uh, all that is sort of arriving next week. So I've done that at um you know like a reasonably high expense so that's um maybe something uh, i can say for a future game score entry how much they actually cost but yeah that's something i did uh i think honestly that was just the power of the shining force 3 discussion i was like and then i looked it up and i thought okay well that will crash if i run it try and run it on steam deck or whatever but um yeah on a on a, the original hardware it will work so uh, what did you make of that when that kicked off matthew i thought well it's not for me <laughs> i also enjoyed that episode but I, I was just happy knowing that these good things existed maybe because i was looking at that infinite wealth in the background it's like i just do i just don't have time if, if i was going to be playing anything my list of games i need to catch up on and and learn to appreciate is very very long and those sega things are not high on it <laughs> yeah so my lo- my list is long too so this is definitely ill-advised as philip schofield <laughs> might say um but ill-advised but not illegal <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, i didn't waste money on a dream first <laughs> that's all i'll say Oh dear, I'm going to regret uh, making that analogy, I just know it. So this episode then, 12 minutes in, let's get to it. The best games of 2002. So one of our longest running uh, series here. So we're just doing top 10 lists from each year, basically. We've done something like 2000 so we did 2001 at the end of last year which was us going a little bit further back than we've been before and i think that was um, a very well received episode matthew very uh, very enjoyable to do that uh, you know very different vibe and to step away from modern games but mm. yeah i think it was um but with a lot of our key techs kind of coming into it so we did um done 2001 done 2006 through to 2016 so we're sort of like racking them up and obviously we've done uh, 2020 21 22 and uh, now 23 as well so we're sort of like um building up this very grand kind of like uh, i don't know tapestry of all the stuff that we think <laughs> is important in the modern age of games i suppose that makes it sound like a lot more sort of um high and mighty than it actually is though <laughs> so um how do you feel about uh, about coming back to to this matthew do you look forward to these episodes or do you dread them because they're always so long i do look forward to them i sometimes worry that i'm just going to repeat myself because you know a lot of these games even though we haven't covered them in the context of the 2002 episode yet they have come up you know in lots of other episodes and we've been doing the podcast so long now that i've forgotten kind of what games i have and haven't talked about yeah i think my top 10 here i'm quietly confident all of these games have had time in the spotlight yeah okay that, that's i think that's fair i had the same concern or i thought am i definitely going to be able to say something new about these games and you know the answer is i probably won't for all of them because of the the thing matthew mentions where this podcast is approaching four years old and so um you know a lot of like the games have come up before but i do think it's a really interesting year to audit partly because i don't know if you felt this way matthew i thought this was maybe the deepest bench of games we've ever picked from for one of these episodes and there's a reason for that which is that the basically what happened in 2001 is a lot of the key games including the um the games coming out for gamecube and xbox were basically shifted to next year for for uh, europe so we go by the european calendar which is why this episode's going to encompass some games if you're an american listener you will have 
known was coming out in 2001. So uh, what do you quite a grand about? statement. This podcast goes by the European calendar. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I make it sound so official. This is going to be daft and the whole thing is pointless. But, uh, you know, like just nonetheless. Uh, but what do you make of the, um, the, the range of games to pick from? Matthew? It is massive. Uh, I've, I've gone with more of a nostalgia take trying to reflect why why i loved at the time rather than like what i have played in the following 20 years to kind of fill in the gaps so it's probably a better depiction of of where my head was at back then so like i'll say up front there's no xbox on my list oh shocker (laughs) yeah yeah, because i was you know but there's maybe a little bit more pc than you might be expecting but it's pc and gamecube basically yeah that's fine mine's kind of like a similar vibe actually where I thought about trying to reflect the sort of like grand sweep of the year, but then I thought actually it would be more interesting to just spotlight the stuff that did represent my sort of like journey with games that year. So Mm. yeah, that's very much what I've done. So big mix of PC and PS2 for me. So yeah, I think think they'll end up being quite different lists with maybe just one or two games that cross over. That might surprise people, I think. So Mm. I can already, I already know a few major games then that are not going to be on your list. I can sort of suss them out in my head based on what you said there. So um Okay, so 2002 then. Uh, right, what were you doing that year, Matthew? What was going on in the life of Matthew Castle in 02? I was doing my AS levels while trying to not fuck them up by also being really interested in the GameCube coming out in May. That's a thing, and we can probably get to that when we when we talk about um, GameCube a bit later. I started to learn to drive this year, which began my absolute nightmare journey with learning to drive there's some disagreement in my family how many times i failed my driving test i think i failed nine times my mum thinks i failed eight times i say nine because then i obviously passed my tenth and i've always said only one in ten driving instructors want me to drive that's always been my little driving gag right it doesn't work as well of like one in nine you know yes <laughs> it's a, that's pretty solid I, I like that you know it kind of uh yeah tells a story yeah yeah i was fucking terrible at learning to drive i was absolutely dreading it i was bad at learning to ride a bike and a bike and a car are very different things but i've just i'm not a very coordinated person and i get very nervous around roads <laughs> on bike i was just constantly convinced that i was going to kill myself by like going under a car or, or a bus or something and when I was driving, it was just flipped. I was just constantly convinced I was going to kill someone <laughs> in this huge car that I was driving. So not a natural driver. It's why I choose to be chauffeured. <laughs> <laughs> you sure do. Uh, driving Mr. Castle. It isn't out of laziness. It is out of compassion and care for everyone else in the world who is outside that car. You're like, this is for your own good, Catherine. By doing this, you will not die. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but I mean, there is a, that, like, you know, joking aside, that's maybe like 5% of what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I was really bad at this. Did, did you do the learning to drive thing at 17? Yeah, it was actually like, it, it was kind of horrible in a different way. Uh, so I wasn't nervous as such, but my driving instructor, I couldn't tell if I was being scammed by him because he would basically talk nonstop for like the entire journey and sometimes we'd pull over and he'd just talk and talk and it was an hour long session but never lasted an hour and it was like it would like it would stretch out to an hour and a half or two hours but then like a full hour of that would just be him talking at me about <laughs> things that he finds interesting at the time he just gave me a full rundown of fucking borat like the entire entire film <laughs> 
he just like <laughs> told me the plot of that film and like i never i've never seen borat and i don't think i ever can now because that guy just completely ruined it for me so <laughs> learning to drive with this guy it was such a waste of time and do you know what actually it was the last person in my life who i tolerated like letting them do whatever they wanted out of politeness because now i would not let anyone get away with it like this is this villain origin story well I, <laughs> so i actually i took one test after about something like something ridiculous like 50 lessons again it felt like a scam and uh, i failed but um i think the guy the guy who was doing my test was um i could smell booze on his breath and i thought yeah you're really fucking with it aren't you mate i'm glad i paid like whatever you know 90 quid for this shit or whatever so <laughs> I, I honestly that disillusioned me from the entire thing and i never completed <laughs> i never like got my license and i left the process despising everyone involved <laughs> I, li- I like the idea of you getting to your driving test and you're like and uh when is the borat test <laughs> <laughs> you're like uh-oh that, yeah. that wasn't relevant oh shit <laughs> You're just but doing I've, Borat I've been, impressions the whole time. But I've been practicing my wife and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I took you off the off the off rails there, but that's yeah, that was my experience, uh, learning to drive. I didn't have the fear, but I had lots of other problems. <laughs> yeah, I, I think once I got to my first driving test and failed, the nerves just got into me and it became like a, a huge thing. And with each test that I'd fail, it'd get worse and worse. This is when I also learned I needed glasses because I couldn't read the number plate on the number plate reading bit of the test. So that started then. I had a similarly bad experience. My driving instructor was a nice guy called Mark. It wasn't on him. I kept getting failed by a lady called Tina Castle, who is the only other castle I've met outside my family. Oh, that is weird. Every time I had a test with her, she just kept failing me again and again and again. And I was just like, you know, give her... Give a fellow castle a break! Come on, like, <laughs> this is this is outrageous behaviour. Um, yeah, so us castles was, have to stick together. <laughs> yeah, so that was bad. It's kind of a stressful year because it was all like, like I said, AS levels and then applying to university. And you know, I'm a person who like definitely at the time, well, probably still now, took great stock in like the traditional way of things. You know, I really thought if I don't do well in these exams and I don't get into a good university, I'm like fucked for life. Yeah, where actually, you know, I did all that and got into a good university and then started on a 13 and a half grand salary. (laughs) So I actually really fucked it. The first bit where I had full control over the situation, I completely fucked myself. Um, Like I could have been one of those sexy characters in HBO show industry. Yeah, I could have been at an investment bank making hundreds of thousands of pounds and going on raunchy adventures. <laughs> I didn't have many raunchy adventures in 2006 at Future. Many. <laughs> I, I ate all that chocolate mousse on the Red Steel trip. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty sexy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but that was that's 2006. But, you know, I, I don't want to foreshadow some good stuff. That doesn't happen for a bit yet. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was just... It was that, you know? It was... Oh, God, it feels like if this year goes badly, I could sort of fuck up my entire life because that's what you were sort of trained to think at that age. Well, yeah, that's it's, it's true, though. That, that's how I remember my AS levels, too. So uh, mine are in, uh, I think I took mine in 05, so a few, a few years down the line. And, yeah, I do remember feeling quite phenomenal pressure doing it. Also, the panic of, like, taking subjects that you know you hate. So sort of, like, doing history, but then you end up i think like there's that thing where oh these are the things you could learn about and then like you have to just depend on the teacher or the exam board whoever to not pick the shittest one on the list so 
when I did history and I had to learn about the Stuarts, I was like, no one gives a fuck. You know what I mean? It was like the most boring kind of like British history. We're so hung up on it in this country because obviously it's like big Brexit vibe here where everything that happened ages ago has to matter. That's what living in Britain is now, basically. So we're, right. we're obsessed with like not learning world history, but then like focusing on our own boring bits of history. And the Stuarts were just like, oh, yeah, basically this guy threw away lots of dinners and then got overthrown by his people. Great. Oh, yeah, that's, but, but well, that drive by but... on the Stuarts there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I just remember like feeling like the water rising a bit because I was doing that and I'd sort of gotten pressured into taking like a government of politics class by my... Oh, I did that too. This is so boring as well. And again, like I think you, I don't think I don't know if I learned anything massively that I couldn't have just learned reading BBC News for the next twenty years. Do you know what I mean? It was a bit of like I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure how useful that actually was. Um, yeah, this, this was definitely a year. Even though I, you know, I started college in two thousand and one, I just became aware of um, other people my age who just seemed so much more like grown up. And had stuff together. Like, I just, I just felt like such a baby at college. Not just because, you know, I like video games and other nerdy stuff. But, you know, you start, you know, meeting, like, oh, girls you really like. But then you start seeing the kind of people they were going out with. They were, like, our age, but they seemed like they were, like, fucking 25 in my eyes. I was just like, what the fuck has this person been doing for 16 years? That they've, they've come out of the same process that we've come out of. So well put together and mature and they've got trendy clothes. Clothes. I mean, that was a fucking nightmare for me. Go- going from uniform to secondary school, where you had to make no choices whatsoever, to college, where all of a sudden, you know, you had this huge level of self-expression. And, you know, I think I was already doing the old jeans and plaid shirt combo of the games journalist. I think that's that's, <laughs> all, that's that's been my natural mode, you know. I felt like I'd been so sort of sheltered, you know. And because I was working at home base on Friday nights, Friday night seemed to be double XP session for, <laughs> for like leveling up socially. Yeah. And I was completely cut out of that because I was selling screws and paints to kind of dads who were trying to get a head start on the weekends to work. I didn't play it very well like that those those two years. I was just, yeah, focused on these stupid getting these grades, getting the university, doing this Sunday job. So, yeah, a bit of a bit of a weird one. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of like, I, I sort of, I'm torn between wanting to, like, make jokes, but also sincerely... I mean, under- by all means. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just where you tell me at a similar age, you're a total babe magnet. <laughs> oh, no, exa- no, I had the exact experience you did, really. Mine was like, my college years were, were basically hampered by... Um, I had to pick up my brother from school twice a week on a kind of rotating schedule. So what that meant was like two days of every week and those two days moving along the week. So Tuesday, Wednesday would then be Wednesday, Thursday and so on meant that I just had a completely fucked social schedule because my parents wouldn't Mm. pay for the childcare. So I had to go and pick my brother up. So that completely fucked me at college, basically. And so I got I've got powerful memories of that but i did also want to make a gag about like uh <laughs> why does dan get to go out with alexa chug and you're stood there in your yoshi t-shirt but it's... <laughs> <laughs> but you know oh again i'm torn between sincerity and um no, making that's a cheap okay. gag, which I, is, I, you know... I was a very dunkable figure at that age uh, and the dunking <laughs> should commence indeed i just popped into my head the day we got our as level results back I celebrated by going to see Eight-Legged Freaks. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know about me. <laughs> Is that the one that's got Scarlett Johansson in it? Yes. I think it had David Arquette in it. 
Right, right. Yeah, I feel like I feel like ScarJo might be in that one as well. I yeah, don't, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like that's the kind of person I was. Like amazing, I get to go and see this. No, I feel you. I I, I do remember that moment of being like i just remember that everyone just seemed to sort of change on a dime when college started like people didn't do the same thing like i've definitely mentioned this before but people we used to just go and play football on the field next to our school like every lunchtime and then it got to um sick form and then all the kids stopped doing that just started sitting around and chatting and, and being on their phones and stuff and so my only source of exercise was suddenly gone and um then also i just we just weren't doing anything better because these were no disrespect, not interesting people. So they didn't have interesting things to say, but they were just sort of sat around. <laughs> no disrespect. They were all boring as shit. Well, I don't know them anymore. That's the thing. They're not. It, that was well. That was the thing that dawned is that we didn't have anything in common, and it was kind of like, ah, oh, I kind of just. I think I just liked playing football with some people who were easy to hang out with. But you, you know, yeah. anyway, that's. But yeah, but my OT was actually quite quite different. Um, I mean, like, I, I would like to come back to yours, Matthew, because I'm sure you have some. Like, you must have some hilarious memories from that time too, or at least. <laughs> No, okay, maybe not then. But um, uh, a few things we'll see. Yeah, so this is my first year of GCSE. So that's like if people want to understand like the very small age difference between me and Matthew, that's basically what what I was doing. So I entered year ten at this point. I think GCSEs were basically like my sort of level intellectually. I think when I got to A level, I just realised I wasn't quite um, up to the up to scratch. <laughs> but that's okay because I've made it through life because I'm very good at like two specific things, which is. You know, oh, actually, I think I'm only like quite good at writing, but then I I know a lot about computer games. That's basically all I can do. So um, it's that, kind that of that was like... the beginnings of like a very badass line in an action film. <laughs> I'm yeah. good at two very specific things. Yeah, and then it didn't quite go anywhere. No, um... <laughs> sheepishly sort of meanders off. <laughs> yeah. So have I told the? I must have told the story. I've definitely told you in real life. But have I told you the story of that? When I did drama at GCSE, and we did the the Ramstein um, thing with the uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, have I not told you that before? If you have told me, I've forgotten it. Because, okay, I mean, I'm I, you must though. Oh, okay. Well, I will. It's the most cringeworthy thing. But that, to be honest, though, everyone in like drama class in the in GCSE level or A level created some very cringy things. Like, I'm not sure I saw anything good in that time, really. Um, but basically had to make some kind of like come up with some kind of narrative and we had to basically <laughs> we had to basically then tell the story of um in both like a literal way and a symbolic way and um, again i think this is a quite a lot to ask of some 15 year olds to be honest so uh all 14 year olds as we were at the time so basically what we did was we decided to do with like a a, a prison escape from a nazi camp that was kind of going to be our plot line right mm-hmm. and so we did we did everything we did we did like the like basically crashing behind enemy lines being taken <laughs> being taken hostage and then the escape we did um afterwards and oh my god i'm actually like cre- creasing up like just trying to tell this is like actually quite embarrassing um in fact it's it's i would say it's one of the five most embarrassing things i've ever done oh excellent <laughs> uh so what so the literal version of the um of the uh the sort of like uh, being taken hostage and escape was not very interesting. It's just some boring script writing, basically. Some dudes it's like the great, great escape, but bad, basically. But mm. the symbolic one was fucking wild. So we we did this thing where to oh god, I feel so embarrassed saying this. So we had to basically to it to denote like crashing behind enemy lines and being captured by the Nazis. We all pretended to be airplanes, fell over, then formed a swastika on the ground with our bodies. <laughs> 
incredibly inappropriate. And we're all different heights, so it would have been a really wonky swastika. <laughs> but the, the 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 sort of like the the <laughs> the amazing climax was we basically had this uh we basically did this pr- basically the plot of like our escape we we never quite made it unfortunately we all just tried to escape then you know again like the great escapes didn't quite get there but um we basically run basically <laughs> the finale was he ran in slow motion while fire fry by ramstein played over the top <laughs> and then we all got gunned down in real time and like if you don't know that song right basically there's a bits in the song where the guy goes bang bang fire fry and at each bang bang one of us fell over and died it was the most embarrassing thing <laughs> anyone has ever produced and like me and my my friend Andrew, the protagonist of Final Fantasy VII, we talk about this literally every time we see each other. But if you just if you just play um, Firefly by Ramstein and then imagine like the entire four minutes of that song or whatever, like some dudes jogging in slow motion across one stage and then like falling over to indicate they've been killed by Nazis, that is a thing that we did in drama class. So very embarrassing. But, but- that is. But you know, drama class is a, is a safe space for discovery like that. That's if you can't take those risks there, where can you take them? <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I just, that's that's one of the lamest things I've ever done. So I hope the listeners <laughs> enjoyed that. That was um, so. I yeah. just can't. I, it's obviously in my head. I only know you as you are now. So I'm like imagining you as you are now doing that. And it's, <laughs> it's amazing that image. But yeah, just imagine me sort of like um, half as wide and then like with uh, no grey hair. And know you've basically got the idea. <laughs> Yeah, so uh yeah yeah if you can imagine such a thing um so yes that that happened um i was trying to get other stuff that happened this year so uh, pop culture is usually a good window to talk about things matthew because mm. i remember last the last episode we did the 2001 one we talked about smtv um so after we did that episode actually i went and watched the smtv like uh reunion special they did a few years ago and watched it and it actually got incredibly melancholy because i watched it and realized it's basically like just you know what you sort of like you realize there's a part of yourself you've not thought about in like decades and then you realize that you're never going to get that part of yourself back i had that powerful feeling watching like cat <laughs> Dealey and Alan deck basically tear up on oh, stage God. it's like an it's like it's like the reverse version of the critic eating the ratatouille at the end of ratatouille <laughs> yeah exactly there's no way to bring that back sadly but um that uh, that that timed nicely because that ended in like they um anadek left at the end of 2001 basically then i think cat daily cat daily left a few months later so that was out of my life in 2002 and i can't remember like i don't think i replaced it with anything because i started doing a paper round basically and making money that way so not Mm. very exciting but um pop culture wise i do remember a few things happening this year so i remember being hyped for attack of the clones because everyone was like oh this Mm -hmm. is gonna be this is gonna be better than uh the phantom menace it it, you know spoiler alert it wasn't but at the time we all believed it did and then that almost immediately being like chucked out of the discourse by sam raby's spider-man which then just came along it was just so monstrously big and was just like the film that everyone my age like loved and and then suddenly i think like people maybe think of x-men as being like the first in this like line of superhero movies that turned it into a kind of turned the entire genre into a phenomenon but in my in my mind it was spider-man was the real kickoff point like x-men was sort of like you know well received and sort of like people kind of liked it but this this was the one where it all sort of kicked into high gear is that your memory of that yeah definitely weirdly i kind of convinced myself that i quite liked attack of the clones 
Oh, we all did, I think. Because I remember saying to people, like, Attack of the Clones is quite hard work, but the end is such a rush of great set pieces. Like, it really comes into its own with this, like, Colosseum, and there's this factory bit, and then you get to see the coolest fight ever with Yoda <laughs> and Christopher Lee. <laughs> and you watch it now, and you're like, oh, my God, this is awful. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> when we rewatched stuff for the Star Wars episode last year, or whenever it was, that was a real like, oh my god, I can't believe I ever I ever endorsed this in any way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really it's really naff, but also that is it's really sort of abrupt how that film ends. It's just sort of like a five minute fight at the end that it's just sort of over. It's a really like poorly structured film as well. Just like all over the place really but no i think everyone had the same thing though like oh okay after the phantom menace they got rid of jake lloyd so this is going to be good now right and so i think we all believed it at the time and then even by revenge of the sith people were like oh this is good and then i feel like it was some like i think some kind of spell broke right like a month after revenge of the sith and we were like oh no that was it that whole thing was a complete waste of time basically (laughs) so yeah this was the year i started listening to randy newman (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is where that interest started. I got into it through. I had a Tom Waits album I really liked. I remember talking to my dad about Tom Waits, and he was saying, "Oh, there's this." Uh, I think that the, the connection is was just like singers with uh, slightly unusual voices. <laughs> and he right. said, "Oh, there's this. You know, I should maybe listen to some Randy Newman at some point." Little did he know that he was he was dooming me and everyone I know to. 20 something years of me f- banging on about Randy Newman. <laughs> but I went and bought the best of Randy Newman from HMV in Winchester, album called Lonely at the Top. And yeah, I was just like, instantly, this is absolutely amazing. I was instantly obsessed with it and felt so frustrated that, like, at a time where every, you know, music seemed very exciting and everyone was getting in, you know, whatever the music of the moment was, I don't really remember because I, I, was, I wasn't really following it. But the frustrating frustration of being into something that, like, just no one else gave a single fuck about and was, like, instantly a joke. Like, every joke about me liking Randy Newman, I heard them all in that year, you know? <laughs> like, the Toy Story guy, and endless, that kind of stuff. Like, so many times we've had to say... No, it isn't just you've got a friend in me. Like here's this whole other career as well. There was that, but I also I went to see. Uh, I was I was big into Divine Comedy at the time, and I went to my first concert that year, which was the Divine Comedy and Ben Folds playing in London. I'd not heard of Ben Folds, and I was, you know, I love the Divine Comedy part of it, but I thought he he was just 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 unbelievably good. Just absolutely blew me away. It was just him and his piano, I think. And that began that thing. So, like, you know, my three big musical interests, Randy Newman, Divine Comedy and Ben Folds, all from 2002. 2002 was a big, big music year for me (laughs) in terms of getting into those things. But to tie it back into video games, this is also the year I got Soldier of Fortune 2. (laughs) Bought for me by one of my friend's older boyfriends. Um, thus the whole, you know, the beginning of the people I knew going out with people who seemed much older, which was which sucked, but was good if you then wanted them to buy you video games, which were 18 rated. This or, or the, the Wolfenstein game from 2001, around that time, were like the, the first sort of steps into like online gaming for me on PC, and I played a lot of Soldier of Fortune 2 online, but I always played it with... <laughs> Ben Folds rocking the suburbs playing. (laughs) 
like on the PC. I, I think I'm, if I'd like ripped that album to the PC or something. So I cannot now listen. A bit like the Danny Elfman with Call of Duty. Like I can't listen to Rocking the Suburbs without having these very visceral flashbacks to just getting my ass handed to me in Soldier of Fortune 2 because I was absolutely terrible at it. Like that is... To me, that is music to sort of squat behind crates to, like just <laughs> hiding, desperate not to be killed and to be the weak link, which, you know, what has been the story of my online gaming, you know, ever, ever more. So, yeah, a weird, a weird music game mashup there. Yeah, music to squat behind crates to is my favourite Ben Folds album, so glad <laughs> you, uh, you brought it up there. Um, yeah, I think uh, I feel bad sort of with the Randy Newman thing because I do laugh instinctively every time you say it and I realise that you have, you know, had every single hacky and I have no knowledge of his work. The thing is, though, I wouldn't even he wouldn't even be on my radar if Toy Story had never happened. But that just obviously yeah. is, that's obviously where everyone's relationship to... The, where it got really bad was when he they, they sent him up in Family Guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was just like permission to lampoon castle even more it's like oh we now know the guy you're talking about it's that funny guy from family guy i to just throw in some more albums then i guess while we're on yeah, this go subject on. Like, yeah <clears throat> what, what was happening musically because you probably know uh yeah so i i just remember that by the way album by red hot chili peppers being fucking everywhere this year i mean it was really good and i really liked it at the time it took a few more years for me to sour on them a little bit i think it was actually when they filed, filed their lawsuit against um californication the tv show i thought that's rock and roll isn't it calling your lawyers jesus so uh <laughs> that's what i kind of thought of them um i remember there was an oasis album that came out this year it was like a big comeback album heathen chemistry it was it was all right it was fine i had a mate who was obsessed with it i listened to that loads this is also the year that avril levine breaks out uh unsurprisingly lots of boys at 14 year old uh, 14 years old um, who like goth girls massively into avril levine like kel surprise you know very shocking for the listeners i'm sure <laughs> and um and there also there was a there was a second coldplay album that was a little bit more middle of the road this year rush of blood to the head the first coldplay album parachutes is pretty good this second one was a little oh. bit like a bit poppier but it had some couple of good songs in it when, um, when i was at college it like coldplay were a cool band to be into for sure yeah um, i think i think it only changes when they get to like fix you and it's like, ah, oh, this is actually awful, and I just need to switch this off. But even then, I'm, I'm, they are obviously a massive band. But yeah, there was definitely they definitely had more of a sort of like indie vibe, and they were perceived that way for at least like a couple of albums. So uh, yeah, there's some good good singles on there. But that's so uh, that's basically all I can remember. I, that's I, I'm not also like not much of a um, as previously discussed. Just you know, trying to describe music on a podcast is really difficult, so I don't even bother. Um, so uh, yeah, but um, so you get thirty seconds of that and five minutes of Randy Newman. That's how the oh. podcast should be, really. No, I think it's I think that's the right the right ratio for us. Um, also, Matthew, you must love this film. Minority Report came out this year. That oh film, yeah, yeah. I remember that being like a big deal. I think like, I felt like a lot of people I knew went to see that. It was just sort of like the uh, no, just it was just a, a the sort of film that they, they don't make anymore, right? It was just you know I know it's based on a Philip K. Dick story, right? But it was very sort of the way it was sort of like the technology was depicted and stuff in, the, in it. It was like Spielberg just still had a bit of um a bit of like his blockbuster sort of prowess, you know what I mean? In uh, in making this, so uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that that was amazing. I wonder, like, if some of this stuff passed you by as well, because you were a little bit older than me. But Triple uh, X of Vin Diesel was a big deal in my school. Mm. I knew a boy who had a uh, like a bisexual awakening um, from, <laughs> from Vin Diesel in that film, which I think you are right to laugh because I just don't, I don't, I can't see how Vin Diesel would be sexy to people. He just has like <laughs> this. It's just I don't know. It's just something about his vibe that doesn't give off sexiness. I can't quite explain it, but don't that... you mean his bisexual awakening? <laughs> 
So uh, yeah, that was a thing that happened. Eight Mile was like the um, the thing that everyone I think thought it was really illicit that they'd seen the Eminem film in my school. So that was your bisexual awakening. <laughs> I was reading a quite a, a story about uh, Mecky Pfeiffer. The um, it was an interview with him about making that film that was on Vulture a few weeks ago. And like, it's funny because I I think that film is really dated in a bunch of ways. If you watch it, like, I don't think that like his his character is like the the black friend. I would say is very underwritten, and then you've got a really badly depicted Brittany Murphy character in it. It's the the sort of like wrap off scenes in it are really good though. And uh, you've got Anthony Mackie, a bit of an early role for him as well. So. It's like it's, there's reasons to watch it, but I think otherwise it's sort of like it's um, a little bit dated. But definitely at the time, that and all those songs that were associated with it as well, like "Lose Yourself," that was just fucking everywhere in 2002. I remember. So um, yeah, those come to mind. But I don't know if, were those those kind of films that were just too immature to you, Matthew? Would you oh, uh, no, at 18 I'm... or 17 have gone to see Eight Mile? Uh, I didn't. I did. I did watch it eventually, but only because it was sold to me as a serious piece of dramatic work um, <laughs> that had been like Oscar nominated. If if you were like Oscar nominated, I'd I'd probably track it down and try and watch it. I was I was quite invested in those as as like I thought that was the what was the arbiter of good taste, um, which obviously I now now know is preposterous. Yeah, I didn't have any any beef with it. <laughs> what about triple x did that happen for you this year i didn't see that at the cinema I, th- I thought that looked garbage <laughs> i've never really been in on vin diesel the first pitch black and chronicles of riddick aside he makes more sense as a video game protagonist than as an actor do you know what i mean like it's sort of like i, I think yeah. it just makes sense in uh yeah first person games basically but voice um, of the iron giant i dig that you know yeah Okay, well, I suppose that's probably enough of our reflections from 2002, isn't it, Matthew? Shall we start talking about games 50 minutes into the podcast? What uh, do you reckon? Yeah, well, yes, yes, I guess. <laughs> well, no, is there anything more you wanted to add? Like, there's no, no, no I've, pressure. I've got, People... I've, I've got a, a, a story about the GameCube launch, which I can... Yeah, that's that. well. Yeah, let's, so let's start with that. So basically, before we do our top 10 list, we also do always do like a lay of the land. So um, it's interesting, actually, Matthew. I was curious, to what extent do you think our 2002 lists benefit from many of the 2001 games that launched in the US and Japan being delayed until the next year in Europe? Has that made this list harder to, to sort of construct? Is this like a rare good year because of those circumstances? Yeah, a rare good year specifically in the UK makes this a confusing episode for our US listeners hmm. because it means, again... It's got games that are old, and a, f- a couple of games didn't make it because they came out in 2003 here. I'm looking at you, Metroid Prime. Yeah, yeah. The, the worst bit of that whole delay was reading magazines and just being so hyped because they do import reviews. And it's funny how many guests we've had on this podcast who've talked about buying a foreign console so they could play import games. At the time, it never crossed my mind. The idea of just owning the base version of the console seemed very um, luxurious. So the idea of being aware that that was a thing that was readily available, I feel like I missed out on being a much cooler games person <laughs> earlier on by by kind of following the rules. I could have been playing all these cool games on an American GameCube. Yeah, it's sort of like the the, the GameCube is rare as well in that they actually like the barriers to uh to sort of playing import games were dropped quite a lot compared to the ps2 like you just had to put in that uh action replay thing right and it would just um i think i've still got one now actually for the mm. us games i've got but i don't think there was any other console where it was that easy to play import games right i didn't even stretch as far as that yeah cops might come bang you up for playing animal crossing two years earlier but um yeah okay so the key video game events this year then so the the two main ones are 
the uh, European launch of the Xbox in March, and then the GameCube launches in May in 2002. So, mm-hmm. yeah, those are the those are the key events. A little bit on the Xbox then. So I remember the pitch of this console being Microsoft's big push into console gaming. I remember feeling like the games were pitched a little bit older than than how I perceived myself at the time. I remember thinking the PS2 was kind of like on my on my level in terms of how it's being pitched the gamecube was maybe be, maybe being pitched a little bit younger than me at the time and then yeah the xbox was like sort of maybe it's going for my dad's age or something like that so i was definitely intrigued by it especially as someone who was playing a lot of um pc games at the time um but um and, and like halo was something that I'd, I'd known about for years because it was originally coming to mac and then pc so i'd read about it in pc magazines and seen screenshots of it it wasn't something i was like in my heart of hearts like mega passionate about oh i have to play this fps where you shoot aliens i think it was just that there was such strong buzz coming out of the us about halo like i remember buying an import issue of egm this year i think the first time ever i'd ever done that and then reading about halo in there and just understanding then like what a a phenomenon was being created essentially mm. so that was sort of like the that was a narrative of the xbox to me is that how you remember it, matthew that it was pitched a little bit older and that halo even in those sort of like times where you just could you could only read about the stuff in magazines halo just had this wave of hype behind it yeah i know we've had disagreements about this in the past but how it was pitched just just didn't speak to me at all it really did pass me by like uh, you know i read games master so i saw all the coverage but it just wasn't sold as something i was interested in i was so all in on the gamecube that i had kind of tunnel vision and it is hard to kind of go back to that and think back to what was the story you know if you weren't really following it and you weren't invested in it it is possible for stuff to pass you by. And I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous as someone who was into games in 2002, but honestly, it wasn't like a, a big concern for me. I've got an interesting stat for you, actually. So in 2002, Halo was the 15th best-selling game in the UK, and uh, there were no Nintendo games above it in the charts. Yeah. So what, it, like, you know, it, it outsold Final Fantasy X, it outsold Time Splitters 2, it outsold yeah, loads and loads of stuff that it basically did. Yeah, it was like, I know, it, 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 yeah. But it, it, yeah, it, it just didn't infiltrate our social group, that's all. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And to be honest, though, I didn't know many people who had it at launch. There was, I remember one kid who bought it straight away, and something Xbox did is they launched it, and they dropped the price almost immediately. They slashed, I think, like 80 quid or 100 quid or something like that off the price, and then um, they actually gave all their early adopters two free games, So, um, which mm. must have been like a massive, a massive expense to them. But that's um, I just I knew a kid who got like Max Payne um, off the back of that, which must have been very happy about because um, that was a pretty, pretty great port of Max Payne, if I recall. So yeah, um, but yeah, that was um, that was the Xbox. And then I think it it was like I think it was it was like a gradual because it had to be right because you know Microsoft didn't have a footprint in that in that market mm. in terms. And so it was it was slow building. And I remember. I remember it was at the end of this year that my friend Donald got an Xbox and got Halo, and that's when it like properly entered my life. Um, you know, sort of like for the first time, I remember going around his house on like Boxing Day, I think it was, or maybe it was like shortly after was, that. Was Donald one of the human swastika? <laughs> no, he wasn't. He got to avoid that. No, okay, good. I just like to keep track of who who was and wasn't in the human swastika. <laughs> yeah, you got me and Andrew Matthews. If you want to get get us cancelled, Stephen Ridley and Graham Wright. They, these were all the perpetrators. Um, so yeah, just if years from now, when one by one you're being murdered, that'll be the connective tissue in the murder mystery novel. <laughs> like, wait a second, they were all members of the same human swastika. You're thinking of fucking Inside Man when you're coming up with that. That's like. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tell you what, though, in the age of like social media, someone would have gone, oh, my God, my classmates just made a swastika on stage and then posted a very blurry picture on Twitter. <laughs> and we would have been cancelled at like the age of 14. That's what would have happened, basically. And rightly so, to be honest. So, I think uh... I think it would have been filmed, uploaded, and it would be so clearly <laughs> naff and comical that it would become a legendary meme. Yeah, like Star Wars kid, basically. Swastika um, boys. I, I think they, I think they might have filmed the the whole thing. So they, I, hopefully that evidence has been long been destroyed. That's, just... If you ever try and get into politics, that's when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yes, um, okay. So let's switch tack to the GameCube launch then, Matthew. What do you remember about this? I mainly remember it had a little price cut in the weeks running up to it, and I was really excited because I had enough money for it. You know, I can't remember what it was and what it became, but it, it... I think it was one four nine and one two nine. I think that's what happened. But I was just like, great, I'm actually on the way to actually having a game for it like i only had enough money to buy the console which is obviously slightly tragic that you could then have nothing to play on it with the money i rented some games from blockbuster i played like a selection of the launch games that way because i couldn't afford it in the run-up to this my mum said i couldn't buy it before my as levels because she was worried it would be too much of a distraction obviously that was incredibly painful so i still pre-ordered one for launch day and i bought it and I was like, how am I going to get this GameCube home without my mum finding out? Because it's in quite a big box. Right. I had this <laughs> I had this quite large rucksack. My, when I was in secondary school, my mum brought me this, like, special back pain rucksack. Right. <laughs> and it was by you the national... You back pain when you were a kid? No, no. Oh, right, yeah. I didn't have back pain, but she bought it to... Like, she must have been sold it somewhere on the grounds of, like, this will prevent your child having back pain later in life. It was from the National Back Pain Association. So I had this rucksack, which had this huge logo on it that said NBPA. And for <laughs> years, I endured people being like, National Backpackers Association. And I'd be like, uh, actually, no, it's National Back Pain Association. So much cooler. <laughs> wow. So you had that at the Randy Newman gags. Like, what, <laughs> oh, you're I just really, a walking target, basically. Yeah, it was, it was rough. But anyway, th- this bag... Uh, to help avoid back pain, it had <laughs> all this padding and it had like a structure inside to stop it from like losing its shape. Right. And I realised that if I cut all that stuff out, I'd be able to hide this GameCube box <laughs> inside this back pain association <laughs> rucksack. Okay. So, so I, I modified it uh, at home base. I remember I was working at home base that night. I remember being in the staff room at home base chopping my rucksack to shit so i could squeeze in this huge gamecube box which if you were to see this thing it was the least subtle disguise ever because it's like you know we're in a cartoon a snake eats something and then its neck is the perfect shape of that thing like a bicycle or whatever it was like that it was just obviously a huge rectangular box with very taut rucksack material stretched over it yeah absolutely ruined that backpack i'm probably now have back pain because i destroyed the structural integrity of my anti-back pain um backpack but it did help get the gamecube home um undetected and then i just had to smuggle it to my dad's house i knew that he'd be more of a collaborator in in the kind of project so uh yeah i took that there and then spent that you know i knew i couldn't take it back and play it at home like trying to hide a gamecube at home from my mom would have been like a preposterous 
that's like a Cheers sitcom story, you know? Yeah. Well, I was just saying, the whole thing reminds me a bit of like a Jonathan Creek plotline, which I imagine <laughs> you were like absorbing all Jonathan Creek content at the time. Maybe, yeah, and, maybe like, a bit of, I th- bit of Creek logic. This might even have been the year that they did the episode where there's that <laughs> it's preposterous solution where they they bash they bash open like a door sort of shining style with an axe and then it turns out the guy with the axe has built a gun into like the bottom of the axe and then uses it to shoot the woman who's inside who then points at like the window so you think it's like a, a killer who's escaped out the window but actually she's pointing at the reflection of the man with the axe preposterous but i imagine that's the sort of thing that embedded itself in your brain you were like i could hide a thing in another thing i could just see Sort of yeah, like the I mean, like, uh, like putting something in a rucksack isn't like an outrageous idea. Well, no, but, but... I mean, like carving out space inside a rucksack for a hidden compartment definitely has big sort of like there's a theatrical <laughs> air to that. I feel there, you know there, what I mean. There, there is. I mean, the other thing. So I was looking at it thinking I could just unpack it and destroy the GameCube box, but I just couldn't do that because you were like, this is my this is the first console I bought with my own money. It's like I'm not going to destroy this box and have a brand new GameCube rattling around in my rucksack like. It has it has to be like this. So, yeah, I remember. But, but I got that. I took it home. Played uh, Monkey Ball, Rope Leader. Just had an amazing time. So my my brilliant ruse uh, absolutely paid off. Uh, I don't know if I ever told my mum I did that. So when she listens to this podcast, which she does <laughs> do, it's quite funny. Whenever she listens to these old ones, she always gets quite sort of uh, nostalgic for them, and she's like, "Oh, it, you know, it's like." Oh, it's like a little window into your psychology at the time that I never really knew. You know, it's like she's sort of getting to know me better through this podcast. But actually, I misremember half this stuff, so <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into it. It wasn't an act of malice. I just didn't want you to tell me off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's uh, that's good to know. That's I like that's that's your story. The thing is, though, did the game keep? I mean, actually, I suppose by May two thousand two, it did have enough games to de- derail your A levels. If you'd had the uh, so the AS levels. If you'd had like the Japanese launch lineup of like Monkey Ball and Luigi's Mansion and I think Wave Race, then I think that yeah. wouldn't necessarily have derailed. That would have like derailed a weekend, but I think you'd have got through okay. But Smash Bros and Rogue Leader, that's where it gets a little bit dicier, you know. So uh Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so so what the other thing we do is so uh, we always go over like what was happening with uh sort of the E threes around around these um these years as well because they're a nice sort of snapshot of what was going on you can see how the industry perceives itself how it sells games to people that sort of thing and uh, what's really you know in a wider sense like something i found quite interesting about the way this stuff was pitched is nintendo had a sort of like a video in the middle of their when they revealed animal crossing and it coming to north america they had like a very frankie muniz-esque kid um talking about animal crossing and then like uh, having a he had a, like a bunch of friends around his age like who he had his memory card and he was like i'm gonna bring my town my town over to your house and stuff like that and it said everything about how nintendo and the way it was selling itself at the time was just a little bit out of step with where the rest of games culture was at because xbox's ad they had like a this is e3 promotional video where it basically plays like a like like a diary essentially so it's like day one and then it shows this like dude who's on a couch and he's like ignoring calls from his girlfriend or hanging up on his girlfriend that sort of thing to keep playing games and then a different game is is rolled out each of the days and then by the end of it he's just like you know hasn't left his house in in years but he's like a dude in his like late 20s he's got like a beard you know what i mean just it just it's all about like how this stuff is sort of like sold to people i think and how you could see that microsoft saw it one way nintendo saw it another and it's i think wes was talking about when he came on about how this is the frosted tips some 41 times and so nintendo right, yeah. was not was not 
not quite where that was. So, you know, this was... I don't think this is the year of um, Des Lynam with the game with the purple moustache, uh, Matthew. But um, I think we're close to that year. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so some stuff happening away from the console manufacturers that's worth spotlighting because uh, other things are happening in games at the same time. This is the year that Half Life Two, uh, the Half Life Two trailer leaked. I think people get their first glimpse of like Alex in first person and like her facial expressions and like physics objects being moved around and just like um, sort of City Seventeen more generally, just sort of like a snapshot of some of the enemies and. This was like a major deal for PC players at the time, as you might expect. Long-awaited sequel. Half-Life 2 had some massive problems with leaks, but um, this wasn't massively on my radar because I don't think I was just... I just wasn't that online at the time. But do you remember there being the first glimpses of this, Matthew? Very clear memory of seeing my first footage of Half-Life 2 at university rather than college. So in probably 2004, Hmm. um, when they put out like the big demo or basically announced how they were going to release it and everything. And I I remember seeing it there and being like, holy shit, I've never seen anything like that. So yeah, I I wasn't really following PC gaming that close. I'm going to say that I I was buying PC games, so I must have been getting them from PC Gamer. But um, yeah, I don't really remember this, to be honest. I don't either, but it was just interesting to read about in retrospect. I always just like to find out what was sort of like what became the big thing that people were talking about that year and this was one of them i thought this was the year that the halo 2 um uh sort of like uh infamous e3 demo debut but that was the following year so the other big thing that happened is that um doom 3 essentially broke cover this year and there was i think there was like a behind closed doors only thing you could go to where they just showed off how the game worked and obviously with doom 3 they had like this revolutionary like lighting so it had a bit more of a survival horror edge so that became the big thing that people were talking about on the show floor the way you sort of reading about in retrospect is that this kind of stole some of the thunder of the console manufacturers because it was just such a long-awaited game so that happened okay we get to nintendo then nintendo are the only one who have their conference from this year online in full so i watched out on the train yesterday while going to yates to fetch a sega saturn from a listener Um, (laughs) you've been to yate before I sort of like I was making bets to myself when I got off. Like, will it have a uh, it'll have a nail bar and a betting shop? I saw a nail bar. I didn't see a betting shop. So, um, but that's safe with any British town, isn't it these days? So, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I watched this. It was um, they go big on this games giant initiative. A very a slightly dull marketing man comes out and talks about how all these games are going to sell in the millions of units and. He was like, oh, we've got more big games in a nine-month window than we ever have in our history, which is kind of plausible when you think about how slow the N64 release cadence was, mm-hmm. right? So they had like, um, they made a good point, you know, that it's basically Mario Sunshine, Zelda, what would become Wind Waker, but didn't have the name at the time, Metroid Prime, and Star Fox Adventures were all going to launch quite close together and in, in theory supercharge the success of the GameCube. Obviously... That didn't quite work, and the GameCube was firmly a third-place console. Um, you know, basically just from from when it launched, and then onwards, Xbox sort of slowly clawed some US market share, but um, mm. the GameCube never really um, took off, unfortunately. But I can see why actually that's a that's a pretty strong combo of things in retrospect. If they had a Nintendo Direct now where they had new games in those all those series, and then they all released within nine months, we would consider that a massive deal. I mean, you know, the closest comparison would be the Switch release window up until Mario Odyssey coming out, right? It was just, um, you know, a very, um, very exciting time. When I look back very fondly on GameCube, I'm probably looking back very fondly on the first two years of GameCube. Yeah. And then I don't really buy anything. And then Resident Evil 4 is this like, holy shit, at the sort of closer, you know, a bit further on, that kind of renews interest. 
it felt really exciting, you know, reading the mags back then. There was always a huge Nintendo game for them to have on the cover, like NGC. Just, it felt to me the place to be. Yeah, it's interesting as well because, like, it's just, again, I, I was I was super pumped about all these games where I just didn't have enough money to get a GameCube as well as a PS2. Mm. So I felt like I'd made my choice a little bit. But in retrospect, you know, I think this holds up very well as a, as a lineup. And I forgot the other thing that Nintendo did. Nintendo actually from their perspective were trying really hard with the third party publishers because they had like a obviously the capcom 5 deal so a bunch of um, resident evil games and other cool things coming to gamecube via that but they also had a deal with namco they talked about here so they talk about how soul Calibur 2 was coming to gamecube obviously that came to everything but they had link in it so it did have a, a big difference there some gba games and that namco were working on a, a shooter starring uh star fox which would go on to be assault which is not a very well regarded game but you know uh, that's mm-hmm. where, where that deal came from and they talked about how this they had this like triforce of um <laughs> of like partnerships it's like namco sega nintendo they put this like triangle logo on screen and talked about that and again i can see why in retrospect that seemed like a good strategy but you just like you know this is a this is a world where gta was changing the way this stuff worked and so what third party publisher mattered at the time was obviously take two right so mm. they just didn't have that which is unfortunate but um they do have some good stuff here though so they have um, this kickoff of metro prime which obviously looks absolutely fucking amazing resident evil zero which would not be sort of all that but um again like you know coming hot on the heels of the resident evil remake so gamecube having a having a good moment there with survival horror and along the same lines eternal darkness was here that releases the following year i believe so another interesting sort of like early noughties horror game and um yeah they got a bunch of cool gba games as well big round of applause and a link to the past comes on screen there's also some game and watch gallery thing i don't remember got a second golden sun game i believe mario advance 3 again that gets like a big round of applause from people it's the one with the baby Mario, Matthew. Is that the is that the right one? Oh, Yoshi's Island. Yeah, it's Yoshi's Island. This one, and then there's some Disney thing I don't remember that looks a bit like the old Castle of Illusion games. <laughs> Everyone had some online game stuff here that's not very interesting. We talked about SoCom on previous um, 2001 episodes, mm. so everyone was going all in on that. But it's interminable to listen to in retrospect, obviously. But they did have Fantasy Star Online, which I know people were big into. It's not a game I have much experience with, but you know, it's one of the final sonic team games in their old form uh, then um, basically we we kind of like get to miyamoto on stage to show off sunshine looks pretty great honestly the way when he's demoing it it looks looks pretty exciting looks cool you can see why the flood gun seems all that but obviously the the end product people weren't necessarily um happy with it's not you know it's not not necessarily that well regarded um amongst the other 3d mario games which mario, matthew's talked about before Wind Waker is here. Like I say, it doesn't have a name yet. But the uh, it's really interesting because you can tell they're responding to the backlash a bit here. The people in the room are cheering. But like, the way Miyamoto pitches it is kind of along the lines of, well, actually, this cartoony art style allows you to be more expressive and therefore realistic. So they, they, the, the language is a tiny bit defensive of, we mm. know people don't like this, so we have to further explain why it's so for them. dumb. Yeah, it is because it just the thing gamers got most wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean they're always getting things wrong, aren't they? But this is, um, th- yeah, this is like you're just watching this on a CRT and you're just like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Basically, that's just mm. incredible. Um, but yeah, it was just again Nintendo being a bit out of step with the moment, unfortunately. But the game is obviously um, uh, to the test of time. You have uh, Nagoshi um, pre Tan appearing on stage. Um, obviously, F Zero GX is the big game that ends the ends the show. 
Um, but there's quite a nice bit where uh, Nagoshi, there's some guy from Namco, Miyamoto, and some other guy, I don't know where he's from, all play four-player um, Zelda Four Swords together with GBAs linked to the GameCube. So, you know, again, uh, an experience that not many people would have just because of the hardware demands of doing so. But um, <laughs> I don't know, it's sort of like in isolation. If you don't know that GTA Vice City is going to come out this year, this seems like it's a pretty amazing array of stuff, really. What do you make of all this, Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish I'd rewatched this. Actually, I I didn't rewatch this presentation beforehand, mainly because I find some of those old conferences just so businessy because they yeah. were more like talking to retailers than than punters. Um, like I said earlier, living these things through magazines just seemed like an embarrassment of riches. You, you know, it, it was a good time. I really felt like GameCube was going to be the place to be. Um, Game Boy Advance wasn't really like on my radar. You know, I, I didn't I didn't have one until a bit after the fact really. I was always a little bit like dismissive of that. If I could if I could redo these years again, well I mean there's lots I'd redo. I mean I'm not gonna say the only thing I got wrong in the early noughties was I didn't have a Game Boy Advance. That's obviously <laughs> that's obviously preposterous. I mean I'd stop all kinds of well, you know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um War on uh, terror. Matthew would stop the war on terror. Well, you could stop the war on terror. I, I mean, anyway, <laughs> that's probably a better use of time travel. <laughs> a couple of other things I missed actually is the Wavebird controller was here. That was about to launch. So they talked a bit about that. Um, there was a quite a big Star Fox Adventures uh, push here, which obviously that game would not um, be anyone's sort of like favorite rare game or favorite Star Fox game, but um, probably at the time hype was still pretty high for that one. And uh, then there was um, yeah, the Animal Crossing thing was the other interesting wrinkle. Because like I say, they had this little Frankie Muniz-esque boy um, sort of selling the game. But there's one point where a girl walks in and you're like, damn, they're so close to figuring out exactly how to pitch this. But they don't quite know what they've got with Animal Crossing yet. And so mm. that was the thing. Is like, I think people like maybe don't remember with that game. Is it it started very much as a sort of like import scene. Oh, you've got to play this kind of like compulsive game. Yeah. Like it was very much a Nintendo person's game. And then when you get to the ds it's sort of like its profile changes and it finds this massive audience is that kind of how you remember animal crossing that it was a little bit more niche this first go around yeah d- definitely can't remember which magazine it was it might have been cube gave away a um demo action replay disc which let you play animal crossing on import if you had the us copy and it felt like a oh this is weird place where all these strange animals say all this weird shit to you like it was the kind of weird localization it sort of still is a little bit that they've just framed it so much better yeah it's quite it's quite it is one of the weirder games to be like quite a mainstream hit yeah we all miss this profile of import game as well i think where it's within reach theoretically but it's also you could also pick it up straight away and understand why it's compulsive you wouldn't be like oh this is impenetrable weird you'd be like i get this i get why this is so compelling so yeah i I kind of miss import games like this where oh it's available in the u.s and it it'll work on something you've got uh in your house and uh yeah yeah i I never had a wave bird you mentioned the wave bird there yeah Uh, i never had one because my gaming setup was I needed to sit quite close to the TV because that's also where my mini fridge was plugged in. <laughs> so if I wanted to be able to lean over and get one of my little cartons of apple juice and a cold Kit Kat, I, I, I didn't need to be whatever, 15 feet away from the TV. <laughs> mini fridge still going strong in uh, O2. Oh, that's mini fridge was like, I was on top of the world. Um <laughs> Friday night home base shift, topping that bad boy up. Just, yeah. uh, Yeah, I used to buy a big, big bar of Cadbury's dairy milk as well, like a big, chunky, whatever the weight was, big, big bar, and put that in there and then munch that over the weekend. Oh, fucking great. 
Yeah, I live like a king. I don't think my weekends now are massively different from that. I'm already plotting which of the various like eggs I'm going to go and get this um this Sunday. So whether it's little caramel <laughs> eggs or the cream eggs or some kind of like white chocolate cream egg, that's still very much. You're at the planning center. your Sunday egg haul. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, I'm quite excited about it. So uh, yeah, okay. So that's Nintendo. It's like a, a yeah, like a strong array of stuff. And like I say, it's the only conferences on online. Like Matthew says, very businessy. Um, there's a salesman who's so boring. The fact the salesman has big. Um, you know when Jeb Bush uh, failed to run for office versus uh, uh, Donald Trump, and he did this that please clap. Do you remember that bit when he did that? Yeah, yeah please clap. It was like it had a bit has a bit of those vibes of that guy's on stage. But um, the games are good, so that's all that matters. It won't take as long to get through the next two because um, Sony and Microsoft, like I say, their conferences are not online, but they do have these big promotional E3 videos that are online. So Sony is not very exciting compared to 2001. So you might remember in the best games of 2001, they had FF10. They had uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, Devil May Cry. That was like all like the first three games on one slide at their E3 conference. <laughs> it's just like out of control good. This year, they don't have anything quite as exciting. So I think like this is their big push. You realize in retrospect, this must have been their strategies. They went heavy on the like, we must have a platforming icon for PS2 because they, mm. didn't, they didn't own Crash Bandicoot. Vivendi did. So the previous year, they launched Jack and Daxter. This year, they launched Sly Cooper and uh, Matthew's favorite game of all time ratchet and clank on ps2 Mm -hmm. that happened so those were like two of their big games and the the first game that phil harrison in this video talks up is primal which is a game i don't think anyone really remembers it's i only ever played the demo but you it's a sony cambridge game so i probably worked with some of the people who made it at frontier i found that a few times where i like looked up i looked up people i was talking to at frontier and i was like oh this person worked on heavenly sword i guess that makes sense because they live in cambridge or whatever so this is a game where you play this a very Buffy-esque woman, described as like a described as I think as like a strong female character by Phil Harrison, very much vernacular of the time kind of thing. So, and then you alternate it between her and this like big gargoyle man, basically, who was like her Giles style uh, sort of like watcher kind of guy. And then like I think the same studio made a very similar game called uh, Ghost Hunter, which I did own actually. I bought it a bundle oh, at the I end of that. Yeah, yeah, and it's another similar deal where you alternate it between a man new hunted ghost and a ghost, and those are like the two characters you played as, but kind of like slightly six out of ten ish third person games from the time so i think i think the point i've always made with the with sony is that they didn't actually need their own in-house games in order to make the console a success in fact matthew i checked and when we did our draft for the ps2 only two games were picked that were published um by sony could you name them that'd be a good test Mm. oh three were actually three were Three published by Sony. I'm trying to think what the fuck we picked. All I can think is Red Faction. (laughs) (laughs) And and it wasn't that. Um, I'll give you a clue for one of yours. It was um, it was a horror game. It was made by some quite prestigious horror people. Uh, horror game, not like a siren or. Yep, that was your survival horror pick. Was Forbidden Siren. Yep. Um, a game involving big monsters. Oh, uh, Shadow of the Colossus. Yep. And the last one was a platforming game. You can work that out, out, I'm sure. Jack and Daxter. Yeah. So the rest of them were all like games from third parties. So basically they, you know, that was like what was sort of powering Sony at the time. So Mm. there's a bit of Devil May Cry 2 here. There's a Silent Hill 3 trailer with a a banging music in it, Akira Yamaoka. I think it's like the, I don't know if you know the You're Not Here song from um, Silent Hill 3, Matthew, but that is like... uh, 
pretty pretty good 2003 ass song so uh um and then there's something about um the ps2 reaching 30 million sales so again massively dominant i don't know if xbox or gamecube even got close to that number ultimately so mgs2 substance had a great trailer here one of my all-time favorites it's sort of like it's loads of the weirdest bits of the game like the last bits of the game like about the patriots being ai and all this stuff cut over all these like vr training and strange what if scenarios where you've got like snake running around them um, big shell and then there's like um there's a skateboarding sequence they added to the to the substance <laughs> version just really really good stuff so that's uh that's sony matthew i'm um, not much more to say there i don't think mm-hmm. so microsoft has um blinks the time sweeper again one of matthew's favorite games of all time um sort of a sort of their attempt to launch a platforming icon i think you can still play this backwards compatible on xbox i don't think they did that the sequel though so um there is actually a sequel to this game as well making Um, that backwards compatible just feels like a very ironic move (laughs) they know what they're doing with that yeah i think they kind of like uh i I think it had it did get some goodwill from some strange people and um there was brute force which looked a bit like halo cross with gears but wasn't really uh sort of breakout on xbox um there was also uh the buffy the vampire slayer game figures quite heavily here because i forgot that was an xbox exclusive the, the first one of those they made which is just just okay in my opinion um i played it a few years ago for the first time it's sort of like it's it's just like a standard third person game of the time i would say lots of puzzles um lots of slightly ropey uh hand-to-hand combat um crimson skies high road to revenge which doesn't why, launch why have we year. never had xbox giles in our um <laughs> game score yeah I, I think well next time let's uh yeah we'll, we'll revisit that um that'd be good uh okay so um yeah so crimson skies which is a fantastic game we talked about that before mm-hmm. i'm sure that'll come up in a future episode again um some sports that no one cares about or at least we don't um kakuto shoujin back alley brutal a fighting game no one remembers dead to rights which was like dumbass namco max Payne. kung fu chaos a quite a problematic fave in the first ninja theory game um that's uh, i think that game is not very well remembered but it's basically like smash bros with loads of kung fu movie sort of like style levels mm. it's, it's pretty fun it was quite problematic but it was very fun i would say me and my friend donald play that loads on their xbox i think it's i think that's all right i think as long as it's fun you can do anything <laughs> <laughs> yeah it would be fun to a swastika on to, on the stage boy wouldn't it um okay uh, mech assault which is obviously for americans we don't really um, play those in europe it's my understanding (laughs) kotor a massive what would be a massive deal obviously i do remember that getting a bit of hype um talk t-o-r-k uh tough hang prehistoric uh platformer honestly does not i have never heard of that (laughs) i think like there was a bit of a like they started well and then it kind of got gradually worse as it went um well i'll say that actually we've got shemu 2 next and uh unreal championship which i do remember being really good on xbox dead or alive extreme volleyball which margaret robertson talked about on the podcast that was um fun hearing her talk about that um <laughs> unusual game steel battalion a back page uh sort of like fave that neither of us have played still um <laughs> tau... yeah, well, i don't own it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do own it and haven't so played i've it. got a good excuse <laughs> yeah that's on me tau feng a very cursed horny fighting game with animalish fighting so you've got like bouncing breasts but then women who look a bit like cats it's just not it's not good oh, man. No. it's no, tough no, no. hang toe jam and l3 which is one of those series that people pretend to like isn't it and um <laughs> turok evolution and vex to really close out in sort of like no style whatsoever so a couple of stinkers there at the end so yeah i would say nintendo actually quite clearly has the best lineup of stuff probably xbox in second place there and then sony weirdly Sony just doesn't need it because they probably know that Vice City is coming out, so they don't have to do anything. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's basically yeah. what happened there. So that's the year, Matthew. Um, that's the, the the kind of details around the year. Is there anything else you wanted to interrogate there? Shall we uh, take a break and come back with our top tens? Yeah, I think we'll we'll maybe cover some of those things in our top tens. So 
Okay, it was a pleasure hearing about the backpack. So, uh, yeah, good times. We'll take a quick <laughs> break and we'll be back with our top tens. Welcome back to the podcast. So, time for the top 10s of 2002. We have uh, yeah, two top 10 lists here, alternating, counting down, and then when we get to the uh, to each game's highest placement in you know the other person's list. God, I can never explain this properly. You know what a top 10 is. Let's get on with it. So, Matthew, what's your number 10? My number 10 is No One Lives Forever 2, A Spy in Harm's Way. Not on my list. This is uh, Monolith's first-person stealth shooter for PC. Big Austin Powers energy. May have come up in one of the game drafts. Yeah, it has. Yeah, or maybe, yeah, something I like that. I feel like we've talked about it and talked about its cursed Austin Powers energy. It's yeah, sort of naughty six, PC gaming draft. Yeah, it's, it has that kind of slightly sort of 60s James Bond Austin Powers energy has levels that kind of remind me of Ken Adams' production design in those James Bond uh, films, like, you know, giant bases inside preposterous locations. I think that was true at the first No One Lives Forever, but where they really landed this was, I think they just sort of found the game a bit more. They they really lent into the kind of stealth element of being a spy and had much deeper stealth mechanics. You could turn lights off, you could hide bodies, you had better gadgets and things to kind of aid you being sneaky so it ends up playing like a austin powers version of thief a little bit but one which could also slip into out and out action if it wanted to do preposterous set pieces i mean the the really famous one in this is you go to a trailer park in ohio i want to say and there is a tornado comes in, starts ripping the park apart, and you end up fighting these ninjas in the middle of this tornado. And then you go into this trailer, and it gets lifted up, and bits of it are falling off, and you're fighting a character inside. So it has has a real spectacle as well. Uh, I remember just reading about that in magazines. I think Games Master, you know, in their little best bit box out that they'd always do, would be like, you get to fight ninjas in a hurricane in this thing. I thought, well, I have to play this. And yeah, ended up really enjoying that, taking it very slowly, methodically clearing a level out of all its people, but also enjoying the bright, colourful levels and maybe some like national stereotypes that don't hold up as well now. Any any game in the early noughties that has like a level set in India is is often a little bit of a uh, kind of clenched teeth emoji. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's a French like all the French wing of this evil organization harm. They're all like mimes and played up with very naff kind of comedy French accents, which. It's probably equally offensive, but I I, I don't think it, it was like a, a cruel game particularly. I think it was just a bit cheeky, um, as things were in the early noughties. That's what we called it, cheekiness. Uh, <laughs> cheeky. <laughs> so don't put us in jail. <laughs> this was also the year of Goldmember, wasn't it, Matthew? Um, 
the uh, the worst of the Austin Powers films? Do you think, or is it, is it like? No, I I prefer it to two. Yeah, I, I suppose like the Michael Caine factor does sort of elevate it slightly, but um, I yeah. think that and the bit with the bit they go to Japan and there's the oh my god, it's a monster that's legally distinct from Godzilla. <laughs> I really like that. That is good actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned on the podcast. My brother became obsessed with Austin Powers last year after I showed him the first one, and then went and watched him and sent me about like, eighteen messages about what he'd just seen, and I was. Very oh. bizarre to like those films must be so confusing. I saw a tweet the other day that said, "If um f- from like the Aus- if Austin Powers had been frozen in the sixties, like relatively speaking, now he would have been frozen in nineteen ninety four. And I just <laughs> <laughs> just can you imagine there being a film about like wow wild nineteen ninety four culture? Well, that's what, I mean? what these just... episodes are. These episodes are us <laughs> defrosting our opinions and ideas from two thousand two <laughs> to shock to shock everyone in twenty twenty four. Well, the funny thing is, I, I played the original No One Lives Forever because it came out on PS2. I think it might have come out like, even this year. But um, I remember just thinking it was like, it felt a lot like other shooters, but uh, just with that sort of like spy, sort of British theme on top of it. Whereas it seemed yeah. like this more confidently just found its identity. Like you say, a little bit of thief in there. Like it just, yeah. they just like, they just maybe figured it out a bit more. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. A little bit of... Deus Ex. I, I I wouldn't want to call this like a proper immersive sim because I think it's like stealth or stealth or bust a little bit. But yeah, like a co- a cool thing. Kind of hard to think what the equivalent of this would be now. You know, just a strange license of its own. Does isn't based on anything. Quite high production values. Obviously, uh, this is Monolith. They go on to be um, Lord uh, Shadow Mordor Monolith. Yeah, and and it's making a Wonder Woman game that hasn't been seen, and it was uh, they haven't yeah. I haven't made a game since twenty seventeen. It's quite a long time, but um, yeah, interesting. This isn't the monolith of Xenoblade. They don't go from <laughs> no one lives forever to a harming a spy in harm's way to making <laughs> four Xenoblade games <laughs> for shame. No, they make fear after this as well, which obviously has again like major sort of like well they just they were just an FPS sort of um, you know like one of the masters from the time really and it, it's sort of like uh, yeah. yeah that's just not the identity of that studio anymore so um yeah shame because it was uh this is a great a great time for this genre right there's just mm. so, so many of them around so uh, yeah I, I decided not to include soldier of fortune 2 because even though i played loads of it it's just it's just so gnarly and kind of like you know the, the only thing it had going for it was wounds look great <laughs> which is <laughs> just a bit of a bleak thing to to be into now <laughs> <laughs> yes fair enough okay interesting that's a that's a good number 10 i think we had some fresh observations there got to mm. talk about gold member briefly that was fun <laughs> okay my number 10 bound to be higher on your list star wars rogue squadron 2 rogue leader yes higher on my list okay so what's your number nine my number nine is another pc game it's freedom force by irrational uh not on my list but was in my honorable mentions I think this is definitely the tail end of my PC interest, or maybe it's our our PC begins to run out of juice or heft, you know, in the coming years. So I sort of fell out of it a bit. Definitely by the time I get to university, I'm not doing PC gaming. But um, yeah, this just just seemed great. I mean, you know, like you say, Spider Man, X Men, these things are getting quite big at the time. Superheroes are kind of forefront of my mind. Here's a game that lets you play as okay, made up superheroes the freedom force you know not based on anything too licensed but the fantasy of being super powered and having superpowers was was really attractive i mean there's a reason all the licensed superhero games even the bad ones from the time do well because i think deep down you're like 
I'd love to see that done well. I'd love to to have, you know, feel that kind of power fantasy. And this game, by doing it as a real-time tactics action RPG, so you're a little bit kind of removed sort of from an isometric perspective, but the range of powers that you have as, as these outlandish characters, not just their inherent powers themselves, but, like, you could pick up cars and lampposts and use them as weapons and jump up onto rooftops and fight things. It, it ticked a lot of boxes of, of experiences I wanted to have in games. I don't remember a huge amount about the fiction other than it kind of pulls from sort of golden era kind of comics. It's very kind of pop arty, very bright and colourful but with like a knowing modern edge. I guess if I was to liken it to anything it's it's maybe got a bit of like the tick energy. Right. In yeah. terms of like it's, it's that very sort of yes we all talk like this and it's sort of very preposterous but also knowing that it's 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 quite silly. Yeah Jack, Jack Kirby-esque energy to it like definitely the character designs on the on the cover and stuff very much in that vein. There was a more colourful sequel which was Freedom Force versus the Third Reich it was sending up more jingoistic kind of heroes the kind of Captain America thing and then what would their 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 equivalents be for like the Nazis but uh, this is the one I played I, w- I was really into it. Yeah, I played a, a bunch of this as well. It's um, it's a just a just a cool, like the kind of game that you just don't. Uh, well, I suppose as well, like it, the fact this is an irrational game is like is always interesting. You know, just to think that mm. you are five years from this to Bioshock is actually quite it's just they're just such different types of games but they were obviously a bit more of a gun for hire um, developer at the time and yeah you can um, design your own superheroes in it as well I just remember it being like tactical but also just really exciting and 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 novel like there was no other really no other game that was really using superheroes in this way at the time the only other superhero games that were really in town were just movie tie-ins so you know obviously like this is the year that the, there's like a spider-man t- a spider-man raimi tie-in and it's just not very yeah, good so that was bad i rented that from blockbuster yeah so much of it's set inside why did they do that <laughs> it's just this it just, it just seemed like a really fresh concept at the time because no one else was making a a game that was inspired by you know by comic books not the movies yeah. so uh yeah when cool the, thing when did the marvel ultimate alliance games come onto the scene right because they're in a similar a slightly they're, similar they're a bit they're a bit more simplified they i'd say they're a more console oh, yeah. version of this yeah they are i think the do they do x-men first i think they do x-men in like maybe 04 or something like that and okay. or 05 so yeah you're a few years along from that but um yeah, these games are on GOG. I think they're a cool little, um, cool little time capsule, and uh, yeah, I, li- I like them. Um, okay, good stuff, Matthew. Well, my number nine is Star Wars Jedi Knight Two Jedi Outcast. Is that on your list? It, I didn't put it on my list. It's definitely in my honourable mentions. Yeah, so another um, like boss game from Raven, who are just like really just the kings of the PC FPS in the early noughties, weren't they? There's like a window mm. there where they're just making making classic after classic so yep so this is a sequel to very beloved uh late 90s star wars game jedi knight i definitely talked about this on the um the star wars one of the three star wars podcasts we've done don't know how you let me get away with that really but um just do another one <laughs> it's always so, good to come back to yeah so they never quite nailed the lightsaber combat in jedi knight it was it was it was pretty good it had the sort of like the right sound effects there was like an excitement factor to it for sure and definitely a novelty to to using a lightsaber in a game for the first time but um there was something about the dynamics of the one-on-one dueling they just didn't quite land and then this game just takes it that step forward where it actually does feel like the lightsabers are clashing it does feel like if you like make one mistake you're fucked it feels like a proper sort of like one-on-one duel 
in the way the movies do admittedly a, a lot more frantic a lot more sort of like mashing buttons and then just hoping you don't get sideswiped while you're just sort of like sprinting around them in a sort of endlessly strafing there's a bit of that going on so maybe not exactly what it's like to watch ewan mcgregor and liam neeson duel with darth maul but you know it's um it's definitely like it the sort of it feels like you are fighting one-on-one the the stakes feel real there's a bunch of like moments in the game where you'll just enter a room you'll see like a an opponent just stood there basically like hooded opponent stood there with a lightsaber and you just you're gonna get that moment of you sort of like turn the lightsaber on you know he turns his on and then it's just like it just kicks off and then there's just like force powers thrown in the mix too so you're pushing each other you know electrocuting each other sort of pulling them towards you just like frantic and exciting and just captured the jedi experience so well like interesting thing is though that the the sort of the single player campaign takes a little while to get going so the whole plot of the original jedi knight the expansion basically meant that kyle katana the protagonist swore off the force so he steadily sort of like gets back into it in, in this game so you get a few sort of like slightly slower paced shooter yeah. shooting levels by today's standards i would say even at the time i didn't think they're all that but then it does have, i think like the second half of the game is when it really sort of comes to life i remember that exact reaction of the thing that i'd read about and was excited to play was just held off for it's not for long but it was a little bit jarring to be like oh where's all the the force powers and the lightsaber that's what i came for this maybe should have made the list it is it is a really great game i i didn't have much investment in the the bigger Carl Catan story or the, or the any of the expanded Star Wars stuff but just mechanically like i say the power fantasy of the lightsaber was was so good back then that's actually like quite a big thing in a lot of the games i liked it was games that let me do things that i'd seen in films or in other media that I wanted to try in a video game and hadn't been tried before and I don't know why that seems less exciting to me now or just that 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 you know maybe we've seen so many of these things but like lightsabers superhero bullet time you know th- those things really spoke to me in, in at this period yeah definitely and I think as well because this is also like the sort of the advent of you know obviously everyone getting broadband and online get play being more prevalent just meant that you could mm. take that experience online and just fight real people with lightsabers that's just like what a amazing progress to go from jedi knight's more larval form of what this kind of game would offer and then just to just take it to that level where it's so it's so refined as an online experience just really really exciting going on i think mm. if i can game ladder to try and get a game on this one i remember just having a <laughs> having a great time um all these star wars characters you could choose from also just had, had a really good power curve as well like you feel the force powers becoming more and more useful you know it just it it just sort of like i think it just captures that film experience of like the the jedi's journey so well and obviously mm. you have the the sith powers as well so yeah um super super oh, cool going online you step into a room draw your lightsaber another person steps into the room draws their lightsaber and then the music of rocking the suburbs begins <laughs> <laughs> oh good stuff yeah just obviously like the sort of the the trail as well of like the i think it was even in one of the adverts just like the what it looked the lightsaber burns into a wall and you see the mark left behind it's just like that felt like a properly next gen thing at the time and mm. uh yeah on pc it was just unparalleled just that precision mouse and keyboard control much as i love the jedi survivor sort of like combat this this is precise and just it's it's such a sort of like pc early noughties way uh just really Mm. what it was something just so so special what's the number eight matthew 
Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4. Not on my list. I think everyone's got like a pro skater in them, like the, the one that they play and really get into, they probably think is, is the good one because it took them through that learning experience and it's quite a steep learning curve, but when you come out the other end, it's something I'd recommend like everyone does at least once is, is probably get into a pro skater game because they're just beautiful the way they kind of blossom out and you really feel like at the start what you're capable of pulling off is just so different to what you're doing after 10 20 hours or whatever i don't really know where pro skater 4 sits in terms of overall rankings of the series it's it's a bit of a weird one in that it's the like middle ground between the kind of earlier games which is just very pure like arcade you have x amount of time to kind of score these points and the slightly more kind of freeform open world Tony Hawk's, which is definitely the death of that series, like when it becomes too open. You know, in this one, you enter the levels, you have a bit of freedom to skate around, no timer, and uh, to go up and accept missions. The missions themselves often are timed, so they kind of then lock you into that, that old arcade mentality. You know, some people would say that already it has kind of hurt the purity of it but it isn't yet at the point where you're getting off your board and walking around which for me as well i'm not not into that that, yeah, that isn't for me i'd agree this is a good sweet spot in terms of silliness of what goofy things might happen if you are at alcatraz and also the purity of these are just good level layouts for coming up with these awesome combos i got really into high score chasing in this to try and get into uh, the high score challenges that they used to do in NGC magazine. Uh, this is the only game where I ever scored high enough to, to qualify for one of those things. I remember being obsessed with manualing and how long the manuals could go on and the mad combo change. You could like revert them to kind of constantly sort of flip them on their head. Like the more moves you do, the score area at the bottom of the screen, which would like list the moves you were doing. If you were doing lots of like constantly changing while you were doing manuals and grinds and whatnot, like that list of moves would just be so long, this huge shopping list that then finally landing it and seeing like what the score was worth was just one of the best feelings in, in games every once in a while i hear a song that was on the soundtrack and um, it isn't my natural cup of tea you know there's no randy newman on there but i only know these songs as songs in in tony hawks i don't even know what half of them are called yeah but when i hear them they have already referenced it once ratatouille style they take me right back yeah yeah so you're a big uh you know you are secretly a big system of a down shimmy head matthew that's like your sort of thing or uh <laughs> black ball by the offspring i um, think it opens with is it TNT by ACDC? Yeah, yeah. I think it. that plays over the intro credits. So you'd hear like the, you know, I'd hear enough of that until I could skip it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thing, thing is, I, I actually, I slightly missed this one. I played a bunch of, th- loads of three. Right. But I think, I don't think I got bored of the formula, but I think I just, there were just other games I had to play this year. So that's where I ended up putting my money. And um, yeah. But I do agree that sort of like, you do wonder, did they just abandon the sort of purity of it too fast? Did like GTA just like completely, you know, sort of like muddy the waters and everyone was like, what's our version of this? You know what I mean? Like it's sort of, yeah, that really creeps in and starting this year, but more into like the next couple of years where G- there's like an open world. Everyone's either got their version of GTA or it just starts filtering over into bits and pieces. So yeah, yeah. yeah. 
the the when it when when the skaters start getting off the board and running around, that has huge Rogue Squadron three energy. Where it's like, <laughs> hey, what about on foot sections? And you're like, this is so not what I wanted or what you're capable of doing. Yeah, and you wonder if they'd have just taken like a couple of years off, and I, I don't know, like or just focused on something else. It's just that like it just it's just a, it's such a weird one the history of this series because it just burns bright for such a short period of time and then it just sort of like it already you only have to go forward like three four years and people are a bit more unsure about it so yeah, yeah just seems like a shame still room for a glorious revival of this 100 percent. the more technical like skate side of things that like isn't for me at all yeah maybe it is just the hd remakes of one and two together maybe that is the the, the game I, I wanted yeah especially because i i can't follow the ea skate account on twitter because it's all in lowercase and i just know that somewhere there's a powerpoint <laughs> that says we will do it in lowercase to appeal to gen z and i just can't i can't i'm sorry i can't engage with that so uh I, I, I wish the game well though, and um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, so I'm, I'm with you. I think this, I think this will always be evergreen. People will always want to just do two minutes around a really fucking good course in these games. There's mm. feels like you can just, I don't know, maybe you can amp up the physics of it. Maybe you can just like add like more sort of track creation stuff for people. I don't know. There's feels like there's more to be done there, maybe. Mm. Um, but either way, just yeah, just a revival would be cool. I don't know any of the songs on this soundtrack. That's um, embarrassing, but I'm not a cool guy um, with music as established by me bringing up A Rush of Buds to Head by Coldplay. So uh, <laughs> good stuff. Okay, my number eight, Matthew, is Medal, Medal of Honor Allied Assault. Is this on your list? Oh, not on my list. I sort of forgot about that. Yeah, so again, this is actually the tricky thing is where do I draw the line between all of the great PC first-person shooters and other bits and pieces from this year and where do i like make room for console games so this is maybe a bit low actually relative to how the impact it had on me at the time i think i definitely saw this as the king of all those first-person shooters at the time i just thought this was the one that had the best actual shooting like the best this had the most amazing level design the drama of it was just out of control there were world war ii games before this but it feels like this turns the world war ii fps into a more of a battleground for people to just you know for it to become like a a major sort of like blockbuster focus for the early noughties like this is the game that really sort of solidifies that i think you also have medal of honor frontline this year which is sort of like the watered down not as good console version of this game this is the game by made by the um the developers who would go on to become infinity ward it is uh sort of like a a, a big mix of different types of fps levels some sort of slightly more stealthy levels and um some that are sort of more bombastic action you have a you're like a a step or two ahead of where call of duty 4 would be in terms of those super super tight scripted set pieces this is um you know if you've played call of duty uh sort of one and two this is like definitely more in that vein where there's some levels that are a little a tiny bit more open or like the pacing is a little bit less controlled and then there's some levels like the d-day level in this which is very infamous which is the pacing of it is very controlled all the beats in it are very scripted you can only really do so many things but the sort of like the drama of the moment they're selling you that's the thing that would go on to be sort of call of duty spread and butter would now on the campaign side so that mm. innovation is happening here and i think everyone at the, <laughs> i think i think this is like the year after band of brothers matthew but you've got i think like when you had like saving private ryan and band of brothers and you you had this it just felt like it was in the moment you know what i mean like there's just the idea of like oh, world yeah. war Two action was just a big part of like the, yeah. the, the pop culture dna at the time that thing i was talking about about just certain fantasies if you could do them right they would just they were just perfect you know and like 
if you could make a good Matrix game, if you could make a good Saving Private Ryan game, if you could make a good Spider-Man game, these were just like the the goals for games in my head at, at the time. Medal of Honor on console like never did it for like in before no. this. I, I remember like they'd never been amazingly well reviewed in Games Master anyway. They always looked a bit a bit ropey and maybe the thing they were trying to go for needed PC power behind them to kind of actually make it viable. Yeah, I think as well like that it was I was say at the controls on the console ones. I just didn't think they like I, I understand that like the first two Medal of Honor games were rudimentary because it was a PS1 and that was the you know doing a first person shoot on PS1 was tricky but I thought this was very average to be honest like even compared to if you compared like Medal of Honor to uh on those on the PS1 to GoldenEye for example GoldenEye was just like miles ahead so I didn't quite get what the appeal of it was but there's mm. a lot of hype behind it it was obviously had Spielberg's name on it this one though is just you just have that pc precision controls i think that's just a factor that sets it apart combined Mm. with just like because you know you have those controls the set piece design can be a lot more frantic and fun sort of the other level that stands out to me from this i think it's actually from the spearhead expansion is like you do the um you sort of actually you parachute down into a level as well that was just really fucking cool i think that might have been the opening to the expansion but i just remember that being just again like oh this is what you can do with a first person shooter it's not just a bunch of levels that people have made it actually feels like uh a cutscene you're participating in essentially mm. which you know maybe there is a finite lifespan to how much that sort of thing can excite you and ultimately it is about the mechanics in the game itself but at this time it was it was amazing yeah and they did that whole parachuting one which didn't really set the world on fire on 360 what was that is that airborne, airborne. yeah airborne mm. i think this exact team that makes this i think this is the only one they make and then i think they fall out with ea and then they just go off to make create call of duty basically right. so a very interesting fork in the road for this genre because yeah you just you just know it's about to take games and uh, take over games and change the way games are made forever so uh mm. yeah it starts here but what a rad game great multiplayer as well it's another one i one of the first like proper multiplayer games i played just really really sharp um just love this this particular era of world war Two games made by these particular people really really exciting so uh yeah um again one... mournful world war one very much undermined by ben fold singing the ascent of stan so... <laughs> good stuff um what is your number seven matthew my number seven is mafia that's higher on my list oh uh, not not too much higher though so we'll come back to it shortly my number seven i'm sure this will be on your list matthew kingdom hearts no feels a bit wrong to a bit perverse to put this below medal of honor actually above medal of honor in uh, in <laughs> retrospect but i had to put it here because i think again we're trying to re- represent what was important at the time right and so just caught me on the end of like so a few things happened so for, i was 14 so getting to the point where disney was i was probably slightly too old for disney i was about to age out of it but not quite and kingdom hearts is very much about sort of like the 90s either 90s disney or sort of like golden age disney and so all of the different worlds in the game were taken from that so kingdom hearts i'm sure our listeners know what it is but how it started out was very much it was like a this boy on this island he's separated from his friends when these basically these dark sort of shadowy kind of monsters attack attack this island they're separated the their home appears to be like lost or or destroyed they're basically thrown adrift into into like this uh well into basically their world is one of like many different worlds essentially like self-contained universes basically like uh so their island where they come from that's like that's one world and then agrabah from aladdin is another world and this town called travis town they they go to is another world and essentially they're all being 
blotted out one by one by this uh this guy in this black cloak called ansem who seems to control all these shadowy monsters um sounds preposterous and is i guess so you basically have to go around trying to save these worlds from being blotted out uh by you you have your character has this big key and you basically have to find the lock in these different worlds and basically like secure each world essentially and so yep you go through alice in wonderland aladdin uh what else is in this game um little mermaids in here and uh, tarzan which is one of the better levels uh sans phil collins music i assume they couldn't license it yeah there's a, there's a whole bunch of them and um i think that this is still the p- most the purest and best form of this game even it's it's kind of the it's it's the worst in terms of combat mechanics very straightforward third person action real-time action which square enix the developer was not squaresoft at the time was not used to developing so you have a little bit of a wonky camera but I I really fucking love this game because I think it just tapped into the Disney movies I loved when I was a kid. This is also the year that I go to Disney World with my family. Right. So that was like a, a big thing. So this game just seemed to mean slightly more at the time as a result of that. At the same time, it, this is the year as well I'm getting big into Final Fantasy. So it's weaving in characters from that as well. Hit me at just the right moment, I think. Like if I was like even two, three years older, I think this would have passed me by. But i have a lot of affection for this specific kingdom hearts because of because of that yeah i think it's i think it's cool and i just i don't know i think it just sort of it captures the vibe of the different disney worlds quite well but i think as well its overarching story is quite nicely done because it's not that complicated all the layers of complication the the silly like subtitles and things that people chuckle about with kingdom hearts that all happens a a bit later this first game is very straightforward and i thought it was Mm. just quite quite I don't know, quite sincere quite nice just a, a cool little game and I, one of those games as well where i thought oh they're never going to bring this out in europe this could end up being like a japan america only thing because that would happen a lot with squaresoft games but when this came to europe i was like i have to save up my paper round money go out and fucking buy this and i did and it was um an independent game shop in gosport 30 quid which was like six six weeks worth of paper round salary i had to save to get this and uh i did <laughs> uh, thoughts matthew i'm not gonna dunk on on your love for this thing my brother was really into this i think he's he's more your age too this was a huge game for him so i was definitely around kingdom hearts being played i've personally i i've i've always clashed with its like with its combat system and those kind of real-time menus i've always found it a bit fiddly a bit unsatisfying to play but i i, I replayed a, a chunk of this on game pass a couple of years ago like with mine i thought oh maybe there's a kingdom hearts episode and (laughs) i didn't i didn't get on with it enough to to kind of uh continue with it but the first moment where it sort of shows this sort of shadowy council of what are clearly famous disney villains is is like a really potent hit of that promise yeah of like what this game is and what, what what's really exciting about this game and what was exciting about this game at the time which was just seeing all these things come together in such a strange and unusual way and like you say i think it, it loses its way down the path where it becomes more interested in its own bullshit lore than the incredible natural lore of ip that it has <laughs> 
Yeah. Almost the sort of great tragedy of this is they had such a good idea and then decided to go and take it in such a sort of wanky direction. Yeah. Because even though I went in being like, oh, I'm just going to play a load of this and then dunk on it on the pod, I get how lovingly it recreates these things and then the kind of shock almost of seeing like the villain of all the different Disney properties together and yeah. in like a James, like almost like a Blofeld layer, you know? Yeah, it's true. Like Maleficent and uh, like Hades and Jafar and they, yeah. they're all there, mostly played by their original voice actors as well that is a feat you know bringing all that together it is they also there's also like i think it just knows that yes i think you tap into something quite quite you know quite spot on there which is it knows how to use that that property just so so well so Mm. you get to the very they don't there's no there's no mickey mouse appearance throughout until the very end of the game he turns up literally at the ending basically to be like let's like lock this big door basically which i know sounds preposterous but it is quite a big moment they're like okay they save like the you know the icon of disney till very very last they know what they're doing and there are moments throughout where they just i just think that the way they use the the license is so good so you meet beast from beauty and the beast it's not in his own world he's in like hollow bastion which is one of kingdom hearts own sort of like weird sort of created worlds but you have your your keyblade thing taken off of you and all you have is this wooden sword and your companions go off because you're no longer the keyblade master so they abandon you so it's just you and beast going around but what that means is you are basically useless but you have this giant fucking monster who can kill all the heartless for you and i just i just like the way when they do things like that it just shows that they know they know what they're doing with that that um that license so um mm. yeah i'm trying to trying to be sincere about how good i thought this was at the time i really really liked it it really landed for me and yeah mm. i think it but i think the age thing is just such a huge a crucial difference so um mm. Yeah, and now I think people relate to this series in such a different way because if you discovered this in the last 10, 15 years, which I I do think this has a bit of a younger player base than Final Fantasy does, Mm. which makes sense. Um, I think that people are interested in in its own lore and that's not that's not something i really click with so um yeah but this at the time i promise you this was so exciting and also one of the best looking games on ps2 for sure like you, you must have even noted that when you were playing it but so- it, like it has to be because with something you know you can almost see the deal that was made to get something this sort of precious is it has to to look and sound authentic so almost by default it has to be one of the just best produced games ever <laughs> yeah for sure also, I will say this is my my first encounter with Cloud Strife was in this game as well. It's before I played FF7 oh, for the really? first time. Yeah, that's quite confusing to reverse engineer um, who Cloud is from this game. Uh, yeah, quite odd where he's like fighting. I think he's like fighting Hercules <laughs> and looking for Aerith. Quite confusing. Um, okay, so that's my number seven. So what's your number six, Matthew? My number six is Super Mario Sunshine. Not on my list. Let's go. Um, uh, yeah, I think you... you... You said earlier, you know, this is slightly looked down on now, probably in the canon of 3D Mario, but I'd say even wobblier 3D Mario is better than most people's best attempts at making a 3D platformer. Obviously, I'd say that on a big Nintendo head. The beef I've always had with Super Mario Sunshine, to get that out of the way, is I think it takes one of the the most precise platforming heroes ever and just adds always mad imprecision to him jumps which feel a bit vague because they're jetpack powered and it's very hard to build a platforming game around someone who is as flexible as as super mario sunshine mario is with that with that backpack on and so you know from a technical level that that's that's always kind of annoyed me i don't think it helps that 
it has a slightly wonky camera and some of the jumps are quite hard to judge it's quite a frustrating game there's a lot of levels where if you fall to the bottom it doesn't just reset because it's not like mario galaxy where you're above a huge abyss it's because they're you know kind of coherent 3d spaces you can be climbing all the way up something like in the harbor and then you fall into the water and then you just have to swim back to the start of the level and start it again things like that just feel like nintendo would never let that happen again like it's just so obviously sort of bad and unpleasant to play and because of that there's several worlds in this game which should just fill me with dread because it's like oh i've got to climb all the way back up that thing if i fall down i just have to climb back up it again which it isn't a isn't a good hang to me but easy to say that now with hindsight at the time this seemed incredibly exciting it looks absolutely amazing the the kind of the the graphical effects on the kind of water and cleaning up the paint and the kind of liquid physics still actually very pleasant playing it again on switch i was i was quite impressed with it just showing off like whatever it was that allowed the gamecube to do like a few things which fell out of this world yeah like the reflections on the solar panels that still looks good to me you know you know that's like gamecube ray tracing you know <laughs> and like the effect of it okay it looks a little goofy now but at the time i was like i just can't believe they've made a game look this good it looked absolutely amazing this was like the full might of nintendo's kind of tech brains behind it and I wanted to love it more at the time. I kind of loved the idea of it. I loved the kind of tropical setting. You know, I was still quite fond of the go into a world and kind of pillage it of different stars over different runs. I kind of lean a bit more towards Mario Galaxy's kind of 3D obstacle course design now as as kind of my favoured sort of mode of mario but um i wasn't thinking that at the time at the time i was like i'm kind of, kind of bad at this game but i was obsessed with it and it, it seeing it approaching and reading about it in the mags I was desperate to play it and it really did deliver on that kind of wow factor and and just how different that setting was and for that i kind of will always owe it uh, some measure of affection so number six <laughs> yeah number six that's like, i guess for you and a 3d mario that is low isn't it so that's you know a summary of yeah. this but i think a lot of the way it's perceived i think it was like a lot of it was in retrospect they it, i don't think it was quite as glowing a reception as mario 64 had obviously but and i think that people did point out the difficulty and you know how the flood mechanics affect the game and stuff like that and and it's points of criticism but it did still score extremely highly i think a lot more of that sentiment is built up in retrospect you know um maybe in comparison to the galaxy games which are just so accomplished and there's no real there's no real caveats to the way those games are designed you know so yeah yeah, yeah. it's weird i can't remember who it was but I remember i was on end gamer talking to a member of staff who'd been on ngc at the time and they were like some of us thought it was shit and right. didn't like it at launch and it felt like it got a pass because it was mario and that was a bit of a that was quite early on in in working for endgame and that was a bit of a shocking what yeah, the mag didn't necessarily say what it meant it does happen it does happen definitely a, a weird uneven mario but um playing it recently on the switch actually helped because it you know i found it a, bit, a little bit easier to play and kind of got through it a bit faster and yeah, I think I think it's all right. <laughs> yeah, you know, this placement seems like a good compromise to me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so my number six is Mafia: The City of Lost Heaven, which you had at number eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really love this game. Uh, I've talked about it. I think this came up on the Northeast PC Gaming Draft actually. So again, if I'm repeating myself, I apologise. But you had GTA Three the year before, 
it was an open world game that was about the promise of what you can do with an open world how you treat the sandbox how you create your own kind of stories how you just go out and cause mayhem and have a great time and absorb the atmosphere of a place this game is was obviously it's obviously set uh, in the early part of the 20th century so you have cars that are quite slow so the idea of a chase sequence in a game in an open world game like this is, has very different implications you have a, a speed limiter on your car so you don't get chased by the cops that sort of thing it's very a very interesting period piece period piece and narrative focused version of an open world game it's technically an open world game but the open world is more of like more like a movie set than it is like a you know a, a thing you go out and experiment with though i would say extremely atmospheric very accomplished in its depiction of that setting really just felt like stepping into a into a movie and convincingly brought to life by really good voice acting for the time i would say excellent voice acting it was really up there mm. um legendary smoke effects like the way the sort of smoke rings would blow out <laughs> of the cigarettes that just felt like a really nice touch felt like it just made the most out of having that extra pc grunt at the time this was on the like this is a game i had to go and play at my friend donald's house because our pc was running at like 10 frames or whatever that's when i knew we kind of needed an upgrade but um just really great sort of like mafia narrative just about a cab driver who gets roped into this world mm. essentially and then climbs the ladder and then ultimately the, the the basically the the story is him ratting out his you know his sort of like yeah his, his you know his partners in crime in retrospect essentially and you know even though it's sort of tapping into loads of tropes from that genre it was just a really accomplished version of that sort of thing that meant it had a little bit more going on than just being a pastiche um, I remember mm. the ending of this game just stayed with me. We've again definitely mentioned that before, but then it, the way it ties back into Mafia Two is just one of the all-time um, mm. great bits of game. Sort of like just design ideas. I just really fucking love that. Um, I think this game was just fantastic. The shooting was better than GTA as well. I think even though it's you play it now, it's a little bit rough, um, infamously tough. Uh, sort of like race sequence which they had to patch <laughs> yeah. because it was such a bastard. Quite funny to think about in retrospect, but um, I think you can now even I think you can even skip it in the GOG version of this game. So. It's it's, um, yeah, they, they kind of know it was bullshit. But really, really good, Matthew. And uh, I, I loved it. Yeah, came at the right time. You know, teenager, recently watching Goodfellas, Godfather. You know, all the films this was kind of riffing on, then getting to see it done so kind of accurately. Definitely took a beat to, to get my head around, oh, this isn't a GTA-like. You know, this isn't just an open-world carnage simulator. It's a single-player, like, narrative action game that happens to be set in an open world but i think once once you kind of got over that you could appreciate the kind of standalone levels and the the strength of its action set pieces escaping across the rooftops or during that funeral where it all kicks off stronger mission beats than what gta was doing at the time yeah yeah and fuck that car race though i really thought i couldn't get past it i I thought this is it like i'm not gonna be able to see how good this this game is gonna get and yeah. what has been promised to me in the reviews i'm amazed that didn't get more of a kicking in the reviews in retrospect because it is just like oh so so tricky and the oh, driving of this game generally is like it's it's t- it's tough like it's nice that the anniversary version they did or the the remake they did a few yeah. years ago just ironed that ironed those kinks out uh because yeah oof it was uh yeah tricky um it was kind of bold of them to just go with that handling model that they did though do you know what i mean like it was just mm. a fast car just felt like it was completely out of fucking control in this game it was just really hard to like steer or do anything with it and then the slow cars once they like crashed or slowed down it felt like the- it took about 10 minutes to get it moving again it was just like 
yeah like you had to get out and, and push basically it was like that kind of vibe to it so uh bold of them to go with that when like gta's handling was just so much um you're not not arcadey as such but more arcadey than this for sure um, and i do agree actually the mission design is more like what gta would eventually do because mm. you go back and play the old gta's now they are basically just like go to this place plant this bomb and walk off and that's it and then now they're just these very elaborate multi-part narrative missions where a guy talks to you on the phone for about five minutes and there's or there's a long conversation in a car on a drive somewhere and mm. mafia was a bit ahead of the curve on that so um yeah yeah mm. i agree okay good stuff matthew okay so matthew what's your number five my number five is star wars rogue squadron 2 rogue leader yeah we have talked about this game a lot on this podcast the wow factor of seeing star wars rendered i would say at the time it felt like photo realistically like it looked that good on gamecube and given all the discussions about like the power of the respective power of the consoles whatever was inside gamecube was just harnessed brilliantly by factor five when i think think of images or levels or moments in games that kind of sum up that entire generation the death star trench run of this and the reflections of like laser fire like across the surface of of that thing that is like just a defining image of the console captured the tone of it and put you in the seat of scenes that you were really excited to actually play a very accessible version of star wars arcadey dog fighting none of the kind of nonsense they went on to do in three with on foot sections really what left the lasting impression for me was the look of the thing i just think graphically this was was so superb i have i've you know the the, the fantasy of star wars space battles isn't isn't like an important one to me you know i'm not a, I'm, i couldn't even name like what the different makes of ships are i know what an x-wing and a tie fighter are one of my favorite pc games <laughs> for all the attempts there have been just to put something that looks like star wars on the screen i mean this this is 100 percent that just just absolutely amazing i mean i was actually curious from someone who is more into star wars you know i'm not saying did the story of this scratch an itch but you know is is there more here if you are into star wars uh well i think the thing about rogue squadron is that the the plots of the games are kind of like the in-between times between the movies right so uh mm. it's sort of like this that's the first one certainly is basically like it's after the Battle of Yavin and it's before the Battle of Hoth. This one, what I found really exciting at the time was, oh, they're going to actually do a Battle of um, Battle of Yavin and Battle of Hoth. And then it kind of does all the stuff that happens in between Empire and Return of the Jedi and then right. um, then does Return of the Jedi as well. So yeah. that was that was more exciting because it felt like they had the, you know, the, the GameCube's heft meant that they could actually like portray the movie set pieces in a way that felt convincing in a way that they maybe felt like they couldn't on n64 they had a punt at mm. both those levels in um rogue squadron as hidden levels but they're not nearly as good like the you know the it's the ultimate sort of like show off to the press demo of a of a level the death star level in this it's like one of the all-time great sort of like first levels i would say even mm. though it's so mechanically simple you blow up a bunch of towers you blow up a bunch of tie fires you go down a really long tunnel like they do in the film and then you yeah. fire a proton torpedo and then darth vader tries to blow you up while you're going down there really I mean, i'd say the, the fault there lies with george lucas's story <laughs> <laughs> well no i mean in the that's one of the all-time great movie set pieces i think it's really dramatic and yeah but and this just you know using some of the movie audio works so well you have even like the touch of the millennium falcon turning up at the end to sort of save the day so fucking good 
And then it's it, it's interesting actually. I played a bunch of this yesterday because I wanted some fresh thoughts. Oh, on it, right? Okay. And it's like so much of this game is where the fuck are the Tie Fighters against this backdrop of space? Because like you're, it's like they are like these little sort of like you know grey sort of like I don't know they're like um, hexagons basically that just sort of like pop up in the distance. So the second level, which I think is called Ison Corridor Ambush. Like, you, the first part of the level, it's really hard to see where the fucking TIE Fighters are. And so there's a lot of, like, where are the TIE Fighters? And then following your radar to find where the TIE Fighters are. And, um, right. and in the second half of the level, there's, there's a lot of, like, levels that are set against the backdrop of, like, Nebula in this. And I think that's because they're like, okay, people need, the players need to actually see where the fucking TIE Fighters are. So that's quite <laughs> funny. Um, but no, I think it captures the drama of Star Wars so well. It captures the essence of the ship so well. So y-wing heavy duty powerful thing a-wing basically just like a spitfire piece of metal they just put in the sky basically just really nippy but really easy to destroy x-wing balance of all of them unlock the millennium falcon it feels like an absolute fucking beast really hefty thing sounds like it does in the movies as well with that turret fire just mm. oh it's so good at capturing the essence of star wars those star wars space battles if that's the if that's your thing this game this game is the arcadey flip side to the x-wing simulation games it's just so mm. so good um yeah ho- yeah i think i think holds up for sure because you just don't no one really makes this type of game anymore um probably closest comparison probably star fox which we talked about before like it's a little bit of that to it but maybe like even more focused on the dogfighting element um yeah yeah star good. fox has never gone all in on the like cinematic presentation no i suppose it's not. like the purity of the idea rather than like you know, that's never been Miyamoto's deal, where this is a little bit of both. Yeah, for sure. And it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah, the story thing doesn't isn't really a huge deal. It's other other, other couple of interesting wrinkles, like you, you give orders to your wingman, your wingman, you didn't do that in the last one. That's that that's fairly rudimentary, but it's quite cool. You can be like, go off and get those TIE fighters or whatever. I think the idea, again, the name Rogue Leader is you are in charge of these other mm, X-Wings, so mm. it's meant to be part of the fantasy that they're selling. Um, but really, I think people are just checking in, checking in to see, oh, I've never seen the Battle of Endor done really well in a video game. And this game is like, you do, you have, you have, it's a trap. You have all that stuff happening here. You have like all the TIE fighters in the universe turning up and you have flying into the center of the Death Star with um, uh, Wedge Antilles. Just really fucking good. So yeah, I, I think this holds up and I do hope they salvage it. But even if they don't, like it's, it, it is really nice to boot up a GameCube and play this again. Just really, really satisfying. Mm. So uh, yeah, great stuff, Matthew. number five is ico or eco not on my list yeah not on your list so this released in i think the us and japan the year before came to europe this was never a big commercial success at launch this sold like uh, uh, uh at least here we had some good box art in the america they had a fucking terrible box art like notoriously so so didn't sell very well but maybe the most influential game of any of the games we've discussed in terms of the games that have tried to mimic this, like uh, indie games. So we played Cocoon last year. Cocoon feels like it has almost the exact same structure as, as this game. It's, you know, these games always tend to be about five or six hours in length. There are particular emotional beats they want to hit at certain times. And it feels like they, they take from this game, which is a puzzle adventure game about a boy 
with horns who is basically locked into this tomb in this prison and then there's this weird tremor and um, the tomb falls over and breaks open and he escapes and then he finds this this girl yorda who's like glowing white who is like trapped in this cage he frees her and then they attempt to escape this big castle together while being chased by these shadowy monsters no hud so again very that's you know that again that's such a difference to what games were like at the time where huds were just like clogged up with various elements very minimalist just you didn't have like a health health bar or anything like that it was all just it was all just designed to just put you into the the headspace of the characters and the story and to just be really tuned into that and the the atmosphere was just very sort of like specific um the sensibilities behind like the art direction just meant that this game has such a kind of distinctive identity out of the box i remember playing the demo and just feeling like i'd never played anything like it before and Mm. yeah i think like i think i think that just it's still just so so pure so good such such a beautiful use of like the ps2 sort of like visual heft as well it's that sort of like painterly art style that has held up so well over the years i think and i think as well just a really builds up to a really powerful and devastating ending and just so mysterious what's actually going on i mean you play shadow the colossus and it sheds some light on 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 like who your main character is essentially um but uh this just gives you no real clues and it just it just you just have to pay attention to the way that the the you know the the eco shouts for yorda in the game and things like that to get any bearing of like how the characters are feeling it's just very carefully done and um such a wonderful different game to anything on playstation i haven't got a very interesting take other than like it's never done like a huge amount for me um but i can't quite put my finger on why you know outside of shadow of the colossus i wasn't really into the last guardian either i just don't know if if his slightly sort of wafty vibe is is for me i wish i had a more satisfying take on ueda's stuff i will say that i think like just at the time obviously limited amounts of money to spend on games i played this and i was like one day i'm going to come back and get this when it's cheap in the second hand market and play this because the demo i played probably like 10 to 12 times i was just so right so fond of it i was so like oh i've never seen anything like this before and it to me it was dialing up my excitement of the ps2 is this this machine where there were just so many different types of experience on it and like i was experiencing things i'd never had before it in games but you know that just had experiences that just never existed before and so to have a console that had like gta3 devil may cry jack and daxter and this and you know what i mean it just it seemed to be doing mm-hmm. everything it was such this such a, it seemed like such a broad canvas and so this demo embedding itself in your brain at 14 is kind of the perfect time to discover it because of the the type of story it is who the characters are and then to come back to it as an adult and finally play it was a really satisfying way to close the loop on that because it never dropped in price in the second-hand market because it went out of print. I think they only sold so many copies in the UK and it was like 60, 70 quid, if I recall, to get the old, um, to get the to the, get the launch version. So um, yeah, it took a while. But um, yeah, just I think it's just a really special game. And like, But if you didn't have any, of the, any experience comparable to that, I could see why it'd be a bit of a strange, it'd be, it'd be a bit hard to reverse engineer back to the point of, of you know just what else is around like this at the time the answer was nothing at all you know mm. yeah okay so that's my number five what's your number four matthew uh metal gear solid 2 higher on my list my number four is onamusha 2 samurai's destiny oh finally the reason this podcast exists <laughs> what the entire back page operation yeah i believe so <laughs> yeah i almost sent you actually i was i was gonna say i was in the gym last night and i almost sent you the opening video 
to this as like required watching before this right because i just think it's one of the all-time great cg intros you basically just have these like horsemen attack this village and like it starts with like this fire arrow just landing on like this thatch roof while this like woman's holding this holding her baby and then like all these like innocent people are basically attacked by nobunaga's men and it's just the 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 shots in it are just so amazing like it's just such a dramatic and well-constructed intro i'll put the i'll put the video up on social media when we post it but this is this great shot where like nobunaga just like squashes like a snake against his head it's just like this is really sudden sort of like death of this animal then it cuts to like a a black screen with a like um i don't know like cinematics by this company or whatever and it just mm. is so theatrical so i've definitely talked about onimisha 2 before and the capcom draft i think is where i've talked about it in the most detail so first game survival horror game very much in the resident evil mold but with melee combat and like it's set in a kind of like period uh, japanese setting i can't remember i can't remember the exact period of history but going back several hundred years essentially yeah, this odd thing where this like Nobunaga, this warlord, essentially makes this kind of like pact with these demons to sort of come back to life, and and then you're basically fighting these monsters and then um, fighting Nobunaga himself. So it's um yeah quite quite an interesting sort of like historical uh, demonic fantasy mashup. Second game much more ambitious. You're playing as a a, a different character called uh, Jubei Yagyu who is modelled after like a dead Japanese actor. Um, I think he was in the film Black Rain, the actor he's based on. Um, the ridley right. scott film um so it's um essentially the the sort of like wrinkle with it is it's, it's a it's a way better game in terms of combat you have all of these different uh like weapons that have like um sort of uh elemental properties to them so you have like this i guess like darth maul style double blade weapon that's got like this sort of like area of effect wind attack which is pretty cool um there's like this you get this ice spear in this game which basically just like will freeze everything in a line when you use it just like put these like massive sort of like bits of ice just sort of pop up across the screen really kind of cool power like a it's like an electric base weapon as well and it's um it's it's really kind of like cool mix on resident evil where you're empowered a bit more as a player it's less about scarcity and more about this is challenging but you you have a lot of you have a lot of ways to clear out these hordes of monsters really cool but still has the kind of like fixed camera aesthetic um wrinkle is they add in all these different characters who you trade items with that you pick up throughout the game and then you essentially buy their friendship with these items and then they'll there'll be optional cutscenes that pop up in different areas of the game that um where that character might turn up and help you in combat or you will learn a bit about that character that you didn't before and that will genuinely ebb and flow based on what you trade with players so you you can fall out of favor with a character you can you know you can buy a character's favor and they'll just start appearing more and then it kind of all builds up to this like there are these optional side quests in the game where you will take control of one of these other characters while jubei is otherwise uh out of action and so there'll be an entire playable section just for that character the idea being that when you replay the game you can befriend a different character and um and see how the story plays out that way so you've got four different characters where that can happen they all have different play styles as well so it's like this fat drunk monk there's like a pirate guy who's got all these guns he's a really cool character he can equip a flamethrower which is pretty decent um this is like basically sort of like female she's like a princess in disguise she's like undercover kind of like warrior sort of thing and then there's like a stealthy kind of like um teenager sort of like a guy leaps from rooftop to rooftop so much more athletic kind of character so i just think that that's a really in there's no other capcom game capcom game like this and i don't think anamusha ever gets this good again or is ever this prominent again like the third one Mm. flips to jean renault which is 
a bit different. I think they try to go for more of a Western audience with it, but it was always better when it was just. I know I'll get the Westerners in. Well, that's it. Favorite actor Jean Reno. (laughs) Well, that's it. Which is such an odd touch, but I think it was. I actually think if they had an Onimusha game now, it'd be a smash hit. I thought you get. I feel like there's there are more and more games that are in this vein now than there ever used to be, and I actually Mm. really love this as a kind of like died in the wall Japanese. Japanese ass Capcom game, basically. That's kind of what it felt like to me at the time. Like, I could never mm. get the friends of mine who like Resident Evil, I could never get them interested in Onimusha. But I was like, this is so fucking good. Like, the bosses are great and spectacular, and it's such a beautiful looking game as well. And the voice acting, not, it was, is quite rough in retrospect, but I think that just the, the story generally is quite, it's quite well paced. You're in this, like, there's like this whole element of the story where gold has just been found in this local town and so that's kind of like driving everyone a little bit mad it's just it's really fucking good game man so um those are my onimusha 2 thoughts matthew anything to say in response to that oh i just i i love your passion for onimusha 2 i need to play this game um yeah it was you talking about this at the pub where you thought "Hmm, maybe we could do a podcast so it's a key back page text yeah, I think some of the greatest game music of all time as well by um, Taro Irashiro. I'm so, actually, that's what I forgot to ask you about Kingdom Hearts. Did not even the Shimamura element excite you, Matthew? Her music's amazing in that game. I don't really remember it from what I played because I thought the music was just like riffing on the Disney music. Isn't that right? Uh, not really. It's sort no? of like oh, okay. there's, well, I... there's some bits <laughs> of that, but there's loads and loads of original sort of battle themes and boss themes and stuff. That it's it's quite distinctive soundscape, but uh, oh. no, nonetheless. Anyway, on a mission two, they'll never re-release it um, because I don't think many people bought that first remaster. And the first game really is just okay. I think this game is exceptional. What's your number three, Matthew? My number three is a Resident Evil remake. Not on my list. And another back page favorite. Looking at pictures of this in magazines in the run-up to release, I I just I couldn't even really imagine it moving. You know, it it looked so photorealistic, and I know that's within the constraints of like the fixed camera of kind of pre-rendered backgrounds and everything. But I remember thinking, well, they'll ne- you know that along with Rogue Leader, like they'll they'll never be a game as as good-looking as this. Playing it was my first experience of Resident Evil. I hadn't played it on PlayStation, the original that is. So, uh, you know, it was that double whammy of constantly being agog at how good it looked and also just learning the madness of Resident Evil 1 and that mansion and how properly scary it was knowing the true fear of not being able to go through doors because I was scared what was on the other side introduction of the kind of crimson head enemies the idea that like a zombie you killed could later become a threat and get back up and be even nastier just poisoned the whole space for me like not in a negative way just it just did exactly what it was meant to do and you know some of its resonance is definitely tied with being probably the first big survival horror game that i played and as you play more of this genre you become a little desensitized to it and it becomes harder to find things that work as effectively but this one absolutely did you know by dint of being the first it it just got to land exactly as they wanted to land it yeah i i I, I thought this was amazing oh shit it It took me ages to get through i definitely had to use guides but you know as someone 
who was so excited to own a GameCube. It just it just felt like another you've made a great decision here, Matthew, moment of 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 getting that. Yeah, again, like that first it's that first two years of GameCube, right? It's just yeah. um, absolutely popping off. I was I coveted this massively because it seemed like a game that had a, the profile of a PS2 game, but. It was only happening over on GameCube, which um, obviously Mikami was so besotted with. And yeah, again, um, just just like Rogue Leader, just what the fuck is in this console that's making these games look this good? That's yeah. very much how I saw it. Yeah, played it again recently on GameCube. I think I talked about a bit about it. Just um, it is hard, but that's kind of what's beautiful about it. It's just like it's harder in it's also it's hard in different ways to the original version too because of the mm. crimson heads and stuff like that so there's just a lot of like nice nasty surprises in this in the ways in which it compares to the original and it's so just like freeform for you to go and like figure out how the fuck to progress and just work yeah just works so so well um probably the nicest pre-rendered backgrounds of all time in this game just absolutely mm. gorgeous and then all these 3d models of characters that have somehow held up so so well because of the very particular art style they went with um mm. yeah amazing that this is six years after the original and it just looks about 20 years hence somehow uh, a magic mm. trick they pulled mm. off yeah real good okay so my number three is metal gear solid 2 sons of liberty matthew do you want to give your sort of like big what speech for this one yeah, I don't have like a, a, a grand, all-encompassing take on this. I mean, if anything, the, the thing I love about this game and resonates with me is that you know it was a game of a million tiny, amazing touches. We didn't have a PS One, so like I wouldn't say Metal Gear Solid One had passed the spy. Okay, I eventually played it on PC, but I think by the time I played it, some of the kind of wow factor had been spoiled just by reading about Metal Gear Solid One in magazines, and I got to enjoy two more as it was probably intended just seeing the weirdness of kojima's sort of vision unfold the obsession that i had with the demo that came with zone of the enders of the tanker just seeing how much that level of detail or how that kind of weirdness continued into the oil rig um probably helped that i didn't have like that huge connection with the first game that i didn't feel as put out by uh, the change to Raiden in it. But yeah, just, just discovering like how reactive it was, how, you know, the beauty of so much of Kojima's work is he just thinks of everything and, you know, he understands that if there is an interaction to be done, it should probably do something and he just seems to be one step ahead of you, whether it's how, like, individual props respond to fire, you know, they're melting the ice, bur- uh, ice cubes or the, you know, blowing up a watermelon or whatever to the bigger puzzle solutions to some of the bosses that they come up with it sets you on a bit of a sort of uh hiding to nothing really because you want all games after this kind of game to 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 be like this you know you want all game makers to be as as quirky and ingenious innovative as as possible and you know that sadly isn't the case but um yeah at, at the time this this was just a constant parade of minor wow moments that i maybe didn't fully understand until years later i must admit the ending quite flummoxed me at the time oh it still flummoxes me it's definitely a game which a lot of it's been unlocked by smarter kojima heads than i getting into it and talking with rich about it and people writing really great pieces about it it's it's um one of few games for me that has benefited from that like deep analysis yeah it's a classic kojima game in the sense that it has these, you know, uh, has loads to say about 
online communication and how online communities will build and fester and how uh, basically where we were going as a society. It's way ahead of the curve on that. It's also a game that thinks it's really funny to have its main character be naked and therefore to be a, like a straw in front of its willy. Like that's the sort of like, <laughs> those that's the duality of Kojima at work. Do you know what I mean? That's, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's like, um, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing in so many ways. I think it wows on that level of like how far forward they push the stealth simulation stuff from the original just keeping taking guards hostage and like shooting individual body parts and you know that sort of stuff it's just is just amazing it's just such a marked step forward and then it wows on that level of like jfk-esque conspiracy thriller like it's the the first like touch point i really had with that kind of fiction where it's like oh the the president's not who you think he is and there's like there's much more going on behind the scenes and all this illuminati kind of stuff and that's like that just that hit you at teenager age is basically the right time for you to encounter that sort of thing before you right. become an adult and it seems like slightly preposterous to you um yeah. so i really dug that stuff for sure um <laughs> And then I think all the caveats are in the fact that like it's quite it's quite slow paced and boring in the big shell bits for like large periods of it. It's like like I say, I've joked before, it's like bomb defusal the game. Um there's loads <laughs> and loads of bits with that bomb dis- disposal guy, Peter Stillman. He's so boring. I played a bunch of this with my mate Lynch and when I went over to Japan. That guy is such a fucking tough hang. And yeah, the cutscenes don't respect your time in this. They're very intrusive. But there's like a there's a few interesting wrinkles that keep you going throughout, like you're wondering why Snake is there, but he's in disguise, and then it really takes until the second half of this the game to, for that momentum to come along and for it, things to unravel and for it to get really exciting. Mm-hmm. But it definitely gets there. And I think some of the bosses in this game are just really exciting. There's some big set pieces in this that you just couldn't quite do on PS1 in the same way. Really, really good. And yeah, I think it just it's just so, so memorable. Like um, a big swing in a way that I just don't think you'll ever see. Games can't ever really do anything like this again. You can't be the first game to do this sort of thing again. So in, mm. in so you'll just you'll just never get there. I feel like games playing with reality, the reality of what you're seeing and what you're playing is like is something that like Kojima has he has sowed the seeds of that i don't know if that's like what inspires the likes of like you know daniel mullins game or games or whatever but you know the idea that there is a a meta reality beyond the reality that you're you're Mm. you're playing in the game definitely kojima's behind that stuff and mgs2 is just so so powerful in the way that sort of thing lands um despite some of its downsides so yeah i'm just tickled by the idea of your teenage brain being like Big into hanging out with Beast from Beauty and the Beast, but also open to the Illuminati. Yeah, but that's like, but that's what being a teenager is, isn't it? Yeah, but just it this... is. It is. It's dumb. It is fucking dumb being a teenager. It is. It is because you are like a kid, but you think you're an adult at the same time. You know what I mean? So, in some ways, I think that that means you can connect with so much different media in a way you just can't when you're an adult. But at the same time, you're you're so ill-informed in how you sort of like perceive things so yeah that's very much that's very much me but i still think both those things are rad so uh you know maybe i've just never grown up so uh yeah what's number two matthew it's eternal darkness ah um (laughs) people didn't hear the bit that got cut Uh, um Yes, uh, GameCube survival horror made by uh, Silicon Knights along with Nintendo. One of the funny offshoots of this, uh, before we get into it, is that there are patents that exist for the uh, insanity system that exists in this game, 
which have both they're shared between Dennis Dyack and Miyamoto. Yeah, and I just like the idea that like Miyamoto was making or had some hand in this this survival horror, quite mad, very un Nintendo game at the time. The first mature rated game, I think, published by Nintendo, which was a bit of a talking point. It starts off with a woman called Alex Roivas inheriting a house on Rhode Island. She goes to this house and finds the Tome of Eternal Darkness, uh, a kind of cursed sort of Necronomicon-type book. Looks like serious bad news. And in reading this book and the the, the different chapters of it, she's taken back through the, the history of her uh, ancestors or and people who've come in contact with them who chapter by chapter reveal a grand Lovecraftian cosmic horror conspiracy growing through the ages. What I loved about this was, I mean, it was A, just so un-Nintendo-like that they were, you know, basically trying to do a, a, a Resident Evil. Like, this is their version of a Resident Evil, but on top of that, it had so many unusual systems and ideas which... I've not seen many people kind of toy with. Every chapter had a different protagonist in a different time frame. It was like a collection of short stories. Imagine a bit like Cloud Atlas or something, the way it kind of dips into these different time frames and treats each time frame quite specifically. So you'd have like era-specific weaponry and who the protagonist is would like greatly change what their role was in the story. Like there was like a monk's assistant who wasn't very kind of combat ready. There was a... Persian sort of prince, a dancer. It's always different people. You're having to constantly kind of adjust to their different different skill sets, different powers, different kind of strengths and weaknesses, only for like the hour and a half that you played as them. But that was really interesting. The fact that it did keep jumping through time, but you kept returning to the same location. So you got to see how, you know, a medieval monastery looked during wartime when it'd been taken over as, like, a war hospital, for example. So that was, like, really interesting kind of environmental storytelling. Then on top of that, it had this sanity system where when you saw enemies, if you didn't kill them enough, uh, if you kill them fast enough, they'd drain your sanity. And as a result, the game would start kind of doing these Kojima-esque tricks, I guess, to kind of fuck with you. That might be weird visual filters, but all the way up to the game has corrupted or your controller has disconnected or the TV would look like it turned off or whatever. So just discovering like all these mad things trying to capture your kind of waning sanity, that felt really fresh. Obviously, some games have kind of played with that and you know, the more psychological horror end of the survival horror spectrum kind of does a lot of ideas in this in this place. But I quite like how clearly kind of gamified it was in terms of you have to get your sanity up or this stuff will start kind of going on and, and fucking with you. But then even down to things like it had this magic system where you'd combine runes that you find into... You almost had to kind of create this like vocabulary with the runes to, to kind of conjure certain spells and you'd work out what the runes meant, but you could kind of reverse engineer that by putting them together and seeing what they did. So it had this kind of quite like organic magic system and then it had this a very strange melee combating system where you could target arms, legs, torso or head to kind of chop different bits off different enemies to sort of fight them. It just felt like Nintendo taking a swing at a thousand systems they'd never had to touch for any other game before and coming up with interesting answers to like all of them and that to me just combined into something like so one of a kind from them. There was a failed attempt to kind of 
uh, do a kickstarted sort of semi sort of spiritual successor to this from Dennis Dyke a few years ago, and it didn't it didn't really go anywhere. But this exists as this this quite perfect little little bit of oddness. Also, this was my first encounter with like anything Lovecrafty, hmm. which I, I, f- I find Lovecraft stuff quite cringe. Um, and yeah. I'm always suspicious of people who are into it. It's just it's just a load of old bollocks and people going like mad when they look at like squids and whatever. And I'm like, fine, <laughs> you know, but like I'm, I'm, I just don't know what you're meant to get out of it. It's just like this quite unpleasant piece of work wrote all this all this bullshit, which some people are into at the time. I'm not saying I played this and was like, oh, this seems cool, but I'd probably roll my eyes a bit more at this if this came along now. Like at the time, it was like, oh, that what what a unique world vision that they've come up with. I didn't know that it was pulling from all this pre-existing stuff. So it arrived in a less cynical time in my timeline, um, which is very apt for Eternal Darkness and its and its structure. Um, if if two, if twenty if you'd played as twenty twenty four Matthew, he wouldn't liked Eternal Darkness as much as twenty twenty two Matthew. There's loads about this game that just like. There's just nothing like it in modern games. So the, right. <laughs> the switching of character and setting, like, it's just nothing like that in games. And the fact that the sort of like the, the various Kojima-esque touches it, it does, which is what leads to the Twin Snakes collaboration, isn't it? Probably mm. with uh, Silicon Knights and Kojima um, for that. So it, it like the those touches are such a pre-HDTV era thing. <laughs> you know what I mean as well? Like Because just the logic of how TVs work and... It just means that you just couldn't do anything like this now and have the same effect. Do you know what I mean? Like it just, mm. it was very much a kind of like slightly pre-internet analog age sort of like, you know, way of experimenting with how you were playing the game. And it's just such a great, such a great way to sort of like use horror. And I agree that like the, there was just no one else using Lovecraft at the time to to like as a point of inspiration so it, that, mm. that that is innovation basically because yeah like you yeah. say like that that has become so much more prevalent that now i just sort of shrug it in like you i'm just like oh yeah madness and tentacles great um, <laughs> and so yeah i think they're just this is such a particular kind of game and the fact that it was just on gamecube is almost perfect for it in retrospect you know what i mean yeah. like would this have been as special if you could play this on ps2 xbox and gamecube i don't think it would have been i think it's yeah perfect for the system it was on as the kind of like gamecube's own little weird bespoke horror experience that was never <laughs> to be replicated in any way um yeah. yeah yeah what an what an interesting game i was yeah highly jealous of people at the time i just really wanted to play this it just seemed so so different it was just a weird thing of seeing like a roman centurion and like so a blonde woman in a tank top with a shotgun in the same game i was like what is that thing i've got a i want to know what that thing is um yeah yeah, yeah that's cool. it, has, it has a great jump scare as well involving a bathtub which everyone who's played it remembers it's just uh yeah Re- yeah really cool thing i just like that miyamoto was involved in it or well, that's the narrative anyway i don't i don't know how true that is but just the idea of Miyamoto being a big Lovecraft head is funny to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, damn. Just weird thinking this ever happened. I think there's a few making of pieces on how this did happen. Um, right. But it's just like, it's, yeah, um, so specific. And it kind of, you kind of just think that, I don't know, actually, maybe like Silicon Knights, if they'd have stuck with Nintendo, they might have fell afoul of the Wii not being a good fit for their kinds of games. Mm. But, you know, you, you do wonder. Okay. My number two is Final Fantasy X one of my favorite games of all time i put it number two for a reason or come to back to the number one 
game about a boy in a futuristic city, like a young man, who is a star player of a game called Blitzball, which is sort of like underwater football. The city where he lives, Zanakin, is attacked by this giant mythical monster that looks like a whale, but it's also stranger than that. It's absolutely enormous. Wipes out his home, and he is zapped a thousand years into the future, where seemingly, where uh, his uh, people basically remember his his time as this transgressive age where they used technology for convenience and everyone had to pay the price. And the big demonic whale in question is essentially punishment for humanity's sins. And that's basically <laughs> what the plot of the game is. And he's trying to find out what happened and how... Basically, he wants to get back to where he comes from, but he soon dawns on him that he can't. So he joins the pilgrimage with this young woman called uh, Yuna, who is essentially trying to destroy the big monster in question. And that's essentially what the game is. So it's a Japanese RPG, turn-based combat, and you are going on this pilgrimage, collecting these different summon creatures with the goal of getting the ultimate summon creature, which will destroy this big monster. Um, but then there are other plot twists along the way, where you find out that actually this monster always comes back, even if you destroy it. And destroying it will cost the life of Yuna and also uh, one of her the people in her um her, her her party as well so there is just no it's a cycle of violence essentially and part of the plot in the the last half of the game becomes about how can you break that is it possible to break that should you make that sacrifice is that justified etc etc so quite grand themes um wrapped up in preposterous voice acting the game is Final Fantasy X is dated in some some various ways I think it's a gorgeous looking game tropical rpg world never really final fantasy's never really did anything like it it's very aquatic there's a lot of like small islands and that sort of thing it's very sort of like beautifully sort of drawn but undeniably the i think that the restraints of how they had to do the voice acting at the time means that it just doesn't doesn't quite work in terms of if you were to play it now for the first time i think you would you would very much find limitations and how that voice acting lands compared to how it felt to me in 2002 yeah, i'd say that's right <laughs> yeah um i think it's actually like why i think that the the sort of rumored remake is probably quite a good idea because i do think that this core story is is actually really good and if you can tell that a bit more coherently with like modern voice acting and all those kind of all that kind of like gubbins i think it would actually work a lot better so there's potential there but what you get is a really fucking great rpg combat where you have full customization of how your characters level up you control every single stat increase on this big board game style thing called the sphere grid and it means you can just customize your characters in all these ways you uh, you you could in some of the you could in some of the other final fantasy games but here it's just it's much more vast so if you want to turn your warrior into a warrior and a mage then you can do that you can have the same the same character who knows how to like you know whack an enemy out of the arena can also learn ultima if you really want to i think it's pretty cool to put that power in, play in players hands the summons have a much deeper part in this game than some of the other ones as well they're not just a flashy animation they are full characters that you control in their own right you progress them in their own their own different ways and they're powerful and beautifully animated and just a, just amazing things to behold real kind of like i'd say a lot of the kind of like blockbuster feel of the game comes from the way they are rendered and brought to life some good uh, shit-eating villains in this game really sort of like nicely done on that side uh and blitzball the most hated mini game of all time that i love so uh that's final <laughs> fantasy 10 matthew any thoughts and a man who goes shoo puff <laughs> matthew's primary frame of reference for this game i played it through with Catherine uh, a couple of years ago so uh you know just so i had i had some some way of communicating better with you <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah. I get what you mean about there's there's elements of it where it, it sort of shows its age. Um, this was a bit of an eye opener for me playing this one because after all the criticism of thirteen for being this like corridor, when I remember playing this and being like, this is also a corridor. Yeah, it is. I was kind of amazed that that, that the fan base could sort of throw that in one game's face and not the other where it's absolutely fine in both of them if you're being led along a linear path between interesting story beats does it really matter if the story beats are good enough yeah like who cares yeah but it is wild um even having played it and having heard you explain it several times still not entirely sure that i fully understand it put it alongside metal gear solid 2 as slightly slightly baffling endings that escape me <laughs> uh, yeah but, uh yeah. Uh, yeah, good vibes, good good Hawaiian vibes. It it feels very complete as a Final Fantasy experience as well. Like there's, mm. you get to the end of the game and you've seen lots of different places. Yes, along a big corridor, but you also have like dark aeons to go and like defeat. There's a mega weapon to go and defeat. There's like a, there's like hidden secrets on the map you can go and find with your airship. It's just a very deep game. It's, it has a lot mm. more to give if you want to keep playing it. And um, I don't think all the Final Fantasies have felt like that in recent years. So. Yeah, I think it is a a true sort of like golden age game, but I think it's I think all of those criticisms are fair. I think it serves. I think a lot of the I think like eight and seven also have the problem of incoherent stories. You know, at least or at least the story is incoherently told on some level, so you feel like you're missing right. something as a player. But if you're sort of died in the wall part of that fan base, you've gone out of your way to understand it and engage with it. And this was my first proper touch point with Final Fantasy, so felt like quite a special thing i think this also mm. made me slightly obsessed with the notion of like flashbacks to childhood as a storytelling to device there's a lot of like flashes to white and then like sad boy tedious in the past um right sequences in this game so i think that's sort of like that idea i thought i think i thought of that as like a major storytelling device having played this game basically which does it fucking loads yeah i'm very fond of it and also again PS2, like this is like around the time people stopped doing pre-rendered backgrounds, but here you get some of the most beautiful ones that have ever been put in, um, on screen. So, yeah, nicely done. What's your number one, Matthew? My number one is Super Smash Brothers Melee. Not on my list. Put this one on here. I don't know if we've re- talked massively about Smash Brothers, really, in the course of doing this podcast. No, not really. It's not that I fell out of love with the series as it went on, but I feel like the conversation around Smash Brothers got more and more tiresome and like what people want smash brothers to be and how they think about it and talk about it as a proper fighting game or not a proper fighting game or where it sits in the the fighting game community i I never really gave a shit about about that and i think what i loved about smash brothers the first game and then melee were that these were things which were really championed by the magazines i loved they said it's basically all this fun nintendo stuff kicking the shit out of each other you'd probably like that if you like nintendo stuff which i definitely did and then my relationship with these games was just playing them with my brother alex at home and not ever you know this was before things could be part of an online discourse i didn't know how anyone else perceived this game i just know how it was perceived by me and my brother which was a really colorful fighting game in settings pulled from loads of nintendo games i love just a a real celebration of that heritage I i think as as the series goes on it doesn't become a more serious business, but it loses some of the playful spark. And definitely by the time you get to the newer ones, they seem so pared back in terms of there's there's more stuff in, in them than ever before, but they are a little bit more concerned with being a coherent fighting game is, is my read on probably like the post, the post Wii Smash Brothers. 
Uh, but this one, you know, the stages were a bit like more weirdly designed. They had a lot of gimmicks in them, the kind of stuff most people petitioned them to turn off. They just wanted to play like a flat background, you know, just a base stage with two platforms above it in front of a Nintendo picture. That wasn't Melee, you know. It was, here's the temple from uh, uh, Zelda 2, and you can have a little fight up here in, in these kind of like battlements, or you can take it to this like weird cave underneath, which is really hard to knock people out of because, you know, when you did the, the smash moves, they'd ricochet between the ceiling and the floor, and often you could like stay in there with incredibly high percentage damage and that was absolutely thrilling and stages felt like you were like in these places not just fighting your enemies but also dealing with the weird challenges there was the big metroid level that rotated or big blue where you're fighting on the back of like an f-zero race fucking wild what an exciting thing to have made and conceived of the idea that you could fall on the track and then get pulled off at a million miles an hour because the whole race is kind of moving on without you this game like cared more about that and the concept of like what would it be like to fight in an f-zero race than it did what is it like to be a technical Nintendo fighter? And I know that this one is beloved by the fighting game community, that like within its systems there is greater depth or whatever, but I, I simply do not give a fuck about that side of Smash Brothers. And while they have made Smash Brothers, which are bigger and richer in terms of their heritage, like the, the music stuff they start doing in Brawl Forwards is just like that's the reason to buy those games it's just a collection of the greatest nintendo tunes remixed and reorchestrated like what that that as a project is is crazy but uh this game still has loads of nostalgia loads of fan service but also i think there's just a playfulness to it that really resonated with me it may also just be it was the last one that i played for a considerable amount of time socially like with my brother and so it will forever be locked in as just an extremely good time for me um, you know, I played a lot of Brawl in the office with Rich Stanton, but it, it wasn't the same thing, you know. We were playing at work, you know, Smash Brothers has never been part of my day-to-day -day life in the way that it was back here on GameCube, so I, I have to put it at number one, if only because, you know, just on like an hour basis, this is the game I, I put the most time into. But I do think some of their priorities changed and they, they have become a little too hung up on it being something a little bit more coherent while trying to bring together all this mad incoherent stuff. Like fundamentally this one gets it each stage, leans into the strengths of its specific world and universe and rules and that for me is, is what made it really special. Yeah, I don't know if I feel like Smash Bros has lost that feeling of like how do you build a an innovative level around the idea of this like property because you think about like the picto chat level for example in um yeah is that in brawl that one yeah yeah just the, even like the persona level they added to um to ultimate just with uh i think it's in the um the subway the the depths that you were exploring that game just sort of like i feel like they still get the vibe right in these in this stuff but yeah, i do think I that think... this is the first time you had seen because obviously the n64 had hard limitations so that did feel like you were basically like with a like this i don't know a couple of exceptions like star fox level for example there's not yeah there's it just couldn't do much set piece wise and this was like okay we've got all the gamekeeps power what can we do with it yep um big blue let's have some fucking an actual race that you're jumping on top of the different um the, you know the sort of like the f-zero racers really good mm. and there's is this the is there also like a level with some big kind of like weird pokemon floating pokemon oh, balloon po things yeah the, the, the poker floats level yeah, yeah so stuff like that I, I agree like there's just so much 
imagination behind those um behind how those were brought to life they just felt like such a such a treat and uh is there a game of watch level in this one too That's uh yes some... yeah 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 that that, that, I mean, that like this had a great selection of like hidden stuff like just the more you played the more like weirder things you unlocked and that that was really thrilling and like obviously the new characters that they added were really exciting yeah i maybe maybe i'm being a bit unfair on like later smash brothers like they they definitely all have levels which lean well into their properties you know i love the spirit tracks one on 3ds for example but i i I felt like as it went on i don't know i do feel like they're a little bit more conservative i mean but that's by smash brothers standards like it's obviously still like wildly out there and i don't know just the conversation around smash brothers is really fucking boring to me i I loved it as this self-contained thing and i feel like it just got co-opted by this community that i'm like ugh, it's, it's just not for me that obviously shouldn't really have a bearing on the games themselves, but it has coloured them a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I will say because I, I, I played this a few weeks ago with um, Dave, who come on the podcast, um, and NQ sixty four in London, and it still looks amazing. And it is so fast and so pure that like, that's what you can say for melee. It just feels like it's it's purely. I think, like you say, like there's no. It's designed without a fighting game community in mind, right? It's very much like it's just what is what is fast entertaining and amazing to play with like two three four players in front of a tv mm. in 2002 that's literally how it was conceived so i think that purity is is kind of like what makes it stand out and why it is so special to play now i think there is still a particular feel to how, to how melee felt that, that the other games doesn't have so i think that is absolutely accurate and uh, I, mm. I, I see what you mean about the discourse matthew so that's completely fair i know people get annoyed sometimes when we get like too hung up on the discourse because that isn't the game and it isn't the game's fault but smash brothers is as much a culture now as it is as it is a game what i'm nostalgic for is just a time where that just that could you know that didn't happen or it was feasible a thing could exist in isolation like melee did for me matthew is pl- uh, he's uh, nostalgic for a time where sora did not shake hands with mario that was like uh, a, a period of great culture <laughs> defeat for matthew castle so uh <laughs> okay um my number one is halo combat evolved so first person shooter there were many first person shooters this year but this one i just was the one i would play obsessively over and over again with my friend donald down the road and then with my friend andrew just going through levels uh, like time after time seeing the different ways we can play with the different toys in the game running over each other with the tank uh, running over each other with the um, the banshees, the flying the flying plane things, seeing if I could jump from the very top of like a level down to the bottom by hitting objects on the way down because I knew that physics-wise that would stop Master Chief from taking damage and seeing if the level would load in. All kinds of dumb bullshit. I would do everything I could to try and break this game because I absolutely adored it. I thought from the the different enemy types, which are all just so perfect, the kind of like the way the AI, the AI behaves, so they did, they just felt sort of so tactically responsive in the game. The fact that you did have vehicles that you could just hop in and out of, the fact that the levels felt a bit sandboxy, uh, the iconography of, uh, of this sci-fi universe, which I'm not saying I'm like obsessed with Halo lore or anything like that, but I just thought it was really, really good. 2002, a PC traditionally pc company has made a console for the first time ass iconography that's what it is basically right. <laughs> yeah i think it just looks so good the original halo like even though it's sort of like the colors are so muted and that sort of thing it was still quite a bright and colorful sci-fi universe for the time quite strange love the idea of like the 
basically a big ring that's like this ancient super weapon but if you tap into the power of it you'll unleash all these like primordial monsters that will come and fuck you up which is essentially what happens in the story and then yeah basically like becomes aliens slash aliens uh in the second half uh, when it seems maybe a bit more i don't know slightly starship troopersy in the first half really really good and uh ends with a great escape as you um yeah get in like a jeep and just get out of a big exploding spaceship really fucking good halo matthew <laughs> available now on xbox um really good i thought your number one pick was going to be vice city uh no so vice city has made neither of our lists <laughs> yeah interesting well it didn't happen for me in 2002 like i my mum wouldn't buy right. it for me so i only ended up playing it yeah i think like, oh, 2007 i bought it and by then it was already quite old so just didn't i couldn't form the same relationship to it that other people had and i know for a lot of people gta is vice city still yeah so hence, hence why gta 6 is such a big deal do you have any more thoughts on that one only that i didn't include it for sort of similar similar reasons like it wasn't a, a big part of my landscape at the time i obviously came back to it and played it and loved it and i loved them you know the music of it and what it's tapping into i think i struggle with it a little bit as a because the world and story was a little bit more coherent than threes and there was just a little bit more going on with that regards it made the sloppy or under undercooked mission design feel a bit more egregious still really struggle with it i remember just getting stuck on that fucking junkyard fight level for months and kind of sort of growing to hate not hate the game but feel a lot of spite towards it because of that so um, that's why I didn't make my list, but yeah, I, I didn't put Halo either. I mean, I don't think any of the Halo games are anywhere near like my favourite game lists. It, it just happened for some people, and it didn't happen for me. Yeah, you're just not a big Xbox guy either. That's the thing. Uh, that's no. the thing with you. It's just not quite baked into your DNA being an Xbox guy. It's just not. Yeah, it's not so quite. Pretending to be interested in Halo Four when I was editing. Uh, uh, Halo 5, sorry, when I was editing official Xbox was tough <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I bet uh, like, yeah. Oh my god, Master Chief, so good in fucking Halo 1, here he is again um, Well, <laughs> I maintain that I'm sort of like, I, I'm very platform agnostic with how yeah, I yeah, yeah. enjoy games but um, I think that just yeah, Halo did just feel special because it did feel like they'd nailed the controls in a way that you hadn't seen before and so that's the start, that's kind of like the beginning of the end of like the original array of like first person shooters on pc right because as games became more expensive to make and halo became such a big success it made sense to target that audience um, more than just like the pc audience so yeah in some ways it sort of like brings to a close the types of games that we talked about earlier in our list you know like the allied assaults and um, general outcasts of this world which were made for pc so yeah you know you could say that's like one bad exponent of it but definitely it's a standalone amazing revolutionary uh experience it can i completely sold the xbox to me i was like well i just need to play this i need to have mm. this in my life because i can play this it turns out an unlimited number of times and have a great time so um yes i guess with halo it's a bit like whenever i see people who like just don't get goldeneye yeah like they just didn't do goldeneye they didn't do the goldeneye thing and i'm like well that person's insane goldeneye was amazing <laughs> um i imagine that people feel exactly the same where i'm like it just didn't it just didn't click for me it just didn't i wasn't a halo guy it just happened that way well i think this is so true with so many of the games on these lists from this period where if you weren't there at the time you genuinely can't reverse engineer what they yeah. were like because even by the hd era things had changed so much in terms of how third-person shooters felt or how first-person shooters were designed for controllers that you just can't you can't possibly understand you know it's just yeah you just had to be there for all of this stuff happening and in the moment 
yeah, 2002 felt like a, a, a massive year. There was just so much happening, so much changing, so many things you'd never seen before. And Halo was definitely definitely one of those. And Smash Bros. Melee was definitely like the kind of step forward in games that you'll just never see now. Just like a true mm. generational leap. But like, a, yeah, again, just feels like there's decades apart f- between those games, between the N64 Smash and, and Melee. So, yeah. Okay. We wrap up a monstrously long episode. Very, very quick fire um, honorable mentions from me, Matthew. Jet Set Radio Future, Guitar Man, Asian Mythology, Hitman 2, the original <laughs> Hitman 2, Vice City, Res, Freedom Force, Tekken 4 were all my honorable mentions. I suppose of those, I just pull out Guitar Man as a really special, uh, sort of like unusual rhythm action game on PS2 where you just, we control the guitar using the analog sticks. Really just nicely done and just while some absolutely madcap shit happens in the background. Great time for all involved. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I would say Golden Sun, which I've been replaying since they put it on Virtual Console, is delightful. Castlevania, Harmony of Dissonance, definitely not the strongest of the three GBA ones, but worth a little nod. I, I was also looking at The Thing oh, yeah. on PS2, which is unusual. I just don't know if it's actually very good. It's like a game with a brilliant idea, but actually playing it was was it was a bit of a bad hang, that one. One of those games that... I think people were like, oh, this is such a cool idea in the moment. And then it's sort of like over time, people have cooled on it a little bit. So uh... I just feel like you could do that now brilliantly with like where AI is at and just where we're at with systems-based games. I don't think we were quite there then. And it's, yeah, you have to take it with such a pinch of salt to enjoy it. But yeah, those were the, the biggies. Okay. Well, the podcast is over. It went very, very long. But um, I think like... This is like, uh, I think we can do one of these like a month when we have the mailbags and the what we've been playing is to like ease it off a little bit. Do you think that's right, Matthew? It's like, is that yeah. does that balance out, do you think? Yeah, I feel I feel like that's right. Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening. Backpage Pod on Twitter. Patreon.com slash Backpage Pod if you'd like to support us financially and unlock two additional episodes a month. We just recently did Best TV Shows of 2023. And uh, I bored Matthew with my travel log from Japan. Uh, he that was, was good. Board. A that beloved was... episode. People seem to really like that one. Yeah, I was quite uh, quite surprised by how taken people was. In fact, actually, the funniest thing was my friend Lynch and some of the people who I met out there have been messaging me since then to be like, Oh, you know, to give to give their perspective on like what was happening at the time. They're like, "Oh yeah, you weren't that bad oh company." God, we should do a second one. We should do like uh, like turn it into a Rashomon style project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, how appropriate. Um, and uh, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Mr Basil underscore Pesto. On Blue Sky, oh, I'm Mr me. Basil Pesto. No underscore. Okay, and great. no content. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Samuel W Roberts on both platforms. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.